Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This week's theme is Billy Joel, and Alan and I will be curating a mixtape centered around the Piano Man's album tracks. Yes, we have some deep cuts coming for you. We, we are avoiding the hits, so anything that cracked the top 40 will not be included in this week's episode, but rather we... we approached this um, from the perspective of introducing his unfamiliar songs to to our audience. Um, so unless you are Billy Joe obsessive, as we were in high school, uh, a lot of these songs may be very new to you. Well, and some people may be surprised because there are several songs, at least on my list, that are in people's top five of, of Billy Joel Oh, yeah. That were never singles. That's true, too. Or were released and didn't make the top 40. So those are on the table. So if you're thinking that we're not going to talk about any songs that you know, I'm pretty sure everyone will know some of these songs. Yes. But the only disqualifier was it could not have hit the American Billboard top 40. Yes. Very true. Um, And Billy Joel was chosen. We will be doing artist spotlights from time to time. Uh, This is our first go at it. Uh, But we chose Billy Joel specifically because we have a long history. Uh, Our friendship actually was founded uh, through a a mutual love of and respect for the the piano man. Yeah. So, and that that story, you know, how we met may come up if the right song is on the list. Um, Or if it's not on the list, I'm sure we'll probably resign ourselves to it's on share my, it's on my list it's on, alert. It's, it's so on we'll mine. have a match yeah, okay. we'll probably have a lot of matches yeah no reason to feign ignorance it's on mine as well so but before we dive in though into billy joel i would like to um say thank you very much people that are out there giving us um ratings on um, apple podcasts and itunes and we got a really really nice review that i want to read uh it's from memphis rains and he says great podcast This has been a very enjoyable and educational podcast that I've looked forward to in the last few weeks. There is a good mix between the history of the music and the meaning of the music and how it fits the overall theme of the week. It reminds me of my days creating mixtapes, albeit not the way they did it. This podcast has taught me many new things uh, about various artists, and it has introduced me to more music as well. That's great review. So that, that's exactly what we're we're aiming for. Yes, absolutely. Now he said, albeit not the way he did it. So I think he's trying to say we might have been a little OCD in the way that we chose <laughs> our songs and sequenced not, them. <laughs> not going to argue that point. <laughs> Thank you very much, Memphis Reigns. We really appreciate you not only listening week to week, but taking the time to write us a review because, you know, that, that I don't know about you, Alan, that energizes me to keep going because, yes. you know, it's why it did this for ourselves a couple times. That might be fun. But if no one else is really sharing, then it becomes just kind of a self-indulgent waste of time. I don't know. But the fact that people are enjoying it, looking forward to it, tells us that, uh, yeah, we're not wasting our time. Yeah, we're, we're doing 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 something well. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for the review. It's, uh, it blew me away. I thought it was fantastic. And if you haven't left one yet, uh, we will read it on the show. Uh, so please, uh, if you have an opportunity, just take a few seconds and uh, at least maybe um, give us a star rating. And if, if you have a few seconds, just a few lines uh, would be very helpful in uh, explaining our audience. Yes. All right. So let's go back to Billy Joel. Um, just real quick, does Billy Joel still hold up today? I mean, he hasn't recorded an original pop song since 1993. Correct. And yeah. yet he still sells out Madison Square Garden all the time. I I think that he does. Um, I, he, he sells out. I mean, he doesn't tour, you know, at, like he used to. He does play the Garden, I think, monthly. Uh, or bi-monthly. I'm not sure 
what the schedule is and COVID, of course, has brought everything to a standstill anyway. But uh, he still does tour. I, I saw him three years ago uh, when he was doing the the baseball stadium tours um, uh, or concerts. I, I saw him at Progressive Field last time that I saw him. I, I've seen him five times live. That was the most recent. Um, and, it, you know, I, he still sells out. And you see when you go to a Village Oil concert, it, it's multi-generational. I mean, parents uh, bring their kids and um, probably to introduce them to the music they grew up with. But there are also a lot of millennials that I see that are there just, you know, with their own groups. I mean, it's not, you know, a parental, you know, uh, request. I, I think that his music, much of it is very timeless. You know, he he's not a songwriter in the same vein as, as someone like Springsteen. Well, Springsteen's so prolific. Right, exactly. Right. And, you know, Elton John, of course, Billy Joel is always compared to Elton John. They, they even toured together with the Face to Face tour. Elton is still recording. Billy Joel has stopped. Um, but I, I think that, you know, he is he has a legacy that is going to last um, probably for, you know, decades still to come. I don't think anyone's grown tired of him. I think that uh, when his songs come on the radio, a majority of people... Uh, still enjoy sing along, um, you know, maybe turn up the radio when it plays. I've never met anyone personally that did not like Billy Joel. And or at least some of his songs. I mean, uh, exactly. they may not be fans per se, right? But, but I think pretty much everyone could probably name a Billy Joel song that they like. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that's the charm. He, it's a very accessible pop music. But like you said, it's timeless pop music. It's not guilty pleasure pop music, right? No. It isn't pop music that kind of defined an era, and now we look back on it and kind of laugh because it just kind of, you know, represented that time and, and fizzled away. Um, he, I, I would argue, is in the vein of the classic songwriters, you know, of the standards catalog. Oh, yes. And then he always approaches, most of his, his writing, is, it's approached with kind of a, a classical sensibility, you yeah. know, because he does like classical music and he even recorded a, a classical album. Yes, he did. And so I think it's because of that and his love of music and his wide range uh, and love of music. He just was able to find that sweet spot and create these timeless pop tunes that just about everybody can enjoy. Yeah. And he's influenced and inspired so many, you know, current musicians that are on the charts. Um, I, I just really, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's going anywhere. And you're right. I mean, he has that classical uh, training. Um you know, that was forced upon him at first by his father, who was also a classically trained pianist. But, um, you know, he, as a youth, he, he, you know, rebelled and at times he defied and his parents did not want to continue the piano lessons. Um, but then he found that it actually came, you know, to his advantage when he decided he wanted to meet girls, meet girls and, and <laughs> you know, actually become the rock and roll star. My criteria was, was pretty simple. Uh, my favorite Billy Joel album tracks. Yeah. Uh, that, that's about it. They're nothing thematically, uh, musically, or lyrically thematically. Simply, these are my favorite songs for various reasons. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm the same. Um, you know, as we said, they, they could not crack the top 40. Uh, they could have been released as a single. Some of his singles, uh, you know, never, never charted higher than 50s, 60s, 70s uh, on, on Billboard. Um, but... Uh, yeah, if they did not crack the top 40, it was fair game. And, and There were a couple that were close. Like, sometimes a fantasy, I think, was like 38 or something like that. Yeah. So I couldn't yeah. use that one. Well, I, I wouldn't have used that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun <laughs> but, song. 
not one of my favorites. Um, really? But yeah, I've, there's something about his his deep breathing into the microphone that I find the very video disturbing. is the best. <laughs> the, the video is hilarious. Um, but no, I they're you know I, I compiled my list like you. They're my favorite uh, tracks. Some are deep cuts. Some are actually well known, having. Uh, you know, become radio staples, even though they were not released as singles. So, you know, the audience will know some of our songs. Um, but yeah, I overwhelmingly my list though does it. it, it it's very heavy on uh, the piano tracks. Um, oh. I, I only have a couple, actually. Yeah, just one or two where he trades the piano for uh, the guitar, and, I, and both fall on my alternates list. Actually, um, there's just something about him at the piano and I, I don't know I, I just sometimes I prefer him on the piano with no backing uh, you know no backing, uh, no backing musicians band, right. yeah no band um, yeah know. I say most of mine are like that too yeah he uh, in fact Billy Joel you know it's funny MTV when they were doing the, the Unplugged series they asked him to do an Unplugged special and he scoffed at them and he turned them down and he scoffed and said everything I do is unplugged <laughs> that's true and then the last two albums of his career were very heavy on the electric guitar so um, we'll, we'll talk about you know that uh, I'm sure later in, in the episode but uh, yeah his early works especially just Billy Joel at the piano I, that's you know a majority of what I've brought on my list so cool well I went first last time so I believe it's your turn okay well my first pick this week, it is a track from Glass Houses, okay? Um, Glass House, you know, it was a notable departure from um, the more pop and jazz-tinged stylings of his last two albums. You could argue it's his new wave album. Oh, and that's what it was, yeah. Gla- kind of a lot of Joe Jackson, Elvis Costello type stuff. Exactly, yeah. Uh, you know, it showcases an angrier side of Billy Joel. One determined to prove to critics once and for all that he could actually rock out convincingly. Um and, and he succeeds to the degree that the only tracks that really don't work on the album are the ballads. Um, and then, you know, the album yielded several notable hits um, in the vaguely new wave tinged, um, you know, uh, number one, uh, it's still rock and roll to me. And the Afro-Cuban lilt of Don't Ask Me Why, the aggressive rock or sometimes a fantasy, which, you know, you've already brought up. And, you know, the, the maniacal, you may be right. Um, yeah, they were all strong singles especially you may be right, but like 52nd Street, you know, what's most impressive about the album is just how fun and incessantly catchy the majority of the non-singles are. Uh, Off Elena and Close to the Borderline are both despondent yet quite hooky rockers and that hint, you know, with as, they hit with as much intensity as you may be right. And then there's the playful romp, I Don't Want to Be Alone, which is every bit as catchy and addictive as any of the singles. But my first song is hands down I think the single catchiest Billy Joel song to never grace the top 40. I think we're going to have a match here because you didn't mention the one that okay, I... Okay, yeah. Uh, it is, I, I, I've said this for 20 years, that I do not know what the record label was thinking by not releasing this song. It is better than, I would say, you know, at least half of the singles that have been released from his discography. Should I start humming the national anthem here? You could. All right, you could. all right, yeah. we have a match. Um, yeah, of course, the, the song I'm, I'm talking about is Sleeping With the Television On. Um, and, and that is, I think, more one of his more new wave-ish. Yeah. Like you could see, an, like I said, Elvis Costello or a, a Joe Jackson yeah. singing this song. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, and it is. It is the, the greatest non-single that should have been a single in his catalog. Um, 
you know, it's a forgotten gem of a song. It's it's pure pop fun, and and more than any other non-single in this catalog. I mean, the record label, as I said, it made a huge mistake. Um, the song does begin with the last strain of the national anthem, and, and a lot of our younger listeners may not understand. Yeah, I, yeah. what that what that is because you know, TV, television channels, broadcast channels, back in the seventies and, and prior to that, did not run all night. No. They were not 24 hours. They would sign off somewhere probably, I don't know, what, two in the morning, midnight, depending on uh, depending what station. On the station. Yeah. And they would play the national anthem. Usually you'd see like the graphic of a flag waving. Then it would play like a sound uh, pe- test pattern of some sort, like usually a high-pitched sound. And then they would sign off. They would go black until like six o'clock the next morning. And so it begins with that. So yes. for those of us that are you know old enough to remember, it makes sense with sleeping with the television on because sometimes you would fall asleep watching television and you'd wake up when that high-pitched sound was played yeah oh absolutely and yeah I, as dave said i add to the anthem it's followed by the tone of the color bars you know from from the television sign off um you know it, it's a hint um of the title of the song which which is what happens to you when you don't take a chance on love um it, it's a great extended metaphor and, in the song. and this is one of like 60 billion songs by billy joel about Taking a chance on love. Yes, yes. He, <laughs> it's a uh, common theme throughout it his career. It is a very common career. theme, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's similar to only The Good Die Young in theme and tune, uh, but for a slightly older audience and without the contrast. Yeah, it's a more, it's a more mature yeah. Only The Good Die Young. Yeah, exactly. It's a portrait of two wounded hearts who so fear rejection that they can't bring themselves to take a chance on love. I mean, that, that's the song. And, you know, she's sleeping with the television on. She keeps changing the channels, you know, playing with her clicker, uh, waiting for something good to come on. Meaning, you know, waiting for somebody worthy uh, to, to show up for her to, you know, take a chance on. So, so you think it's about settling? Well, I don't think it's settling necessarily. I think it's it, it's definitely fear of rejection because when, when someone shows up, what does she do? She uses the clicker and you know makes it go away um and i don't think it's i I don't know if it's high expectations or if it's just low self-confidence you know diane the the character um in the song for whatever reason she's just you know she she says that she wants somebody but then she uh gives no pays no attention to anyone with the with their you know, pickup lines. So I, mean, I agree. Um, I agree. In some extent, it can be seen as kind of a, a, a short-term relationship type deal. Not you know, trying not to be rejected or the fear of rejection, like you said. But I've kind of always seen it too as that next step. I mean, you know, people in their twenties and thirties, and Billy Joel at the time would fit this category. You may have a lot of casual relationships. True. Especially men may not want to commit to one. And so there's also that sense of, you know, you can have all these casual relationships, but you're going to grow old sleeping with the television on. And if you're not going to finally commit to somebody and choose to build a relationship over time, you're going to be a lonely person. I I agree completely. Yeah, I I love this song. And it just, 
it's unfathomable to me that, that it was never released. Well, not only is it unfathomable that it wasn't released in a hit, but it's also, it's, I mean, there are a lot of album tracks that were not singles, that were not hits, that have become staples in Billy Joel live shows over the last 30 years. Yes, and this, this is, is not, not one, one of, them. of them. No. So it's not even like, like Vienna, for instance, has had this resurgence lately and has played live often. It's one of the tracks from The Stranger. There were so many great tracks from The Stranger. Right. It was one that was kind of overlooked. But it's still, you know, a fan favorite and played a lot. And this one, this is not one that most people know unless you're a pretty heavy Billy Joel fan. Yes. So, all right, match yeah. already. Match already. We're going to have a lot of matches. have a lot of matches. <laughs> and Glass Houses was, um, was that album. It's one of the earliest albums that I remember my dad playing in the car, probably on his 8-track. And, you know, at the time when you're a kid, you don't, you know, you're not really, you don't really care about music per se, but I remember beginning to, to kind of recognize vocal style so I could recognize the Beatles. I still confuse like Wings and the Beatles, that type of stuff. Right, yeah. So Band on the Run for a while to me was just a Beatles song. Uh, but then Billy Joel became, other than the Beatles, the, Billy Joel was, was the most played by my dad and, and he had glass houses. And this was the first, probably the first album that I knew top to bottom from any artist. And so sleeping with the television on just goes way back for me, probably to when I was like six or seven years old. Well, how old would I have been in 1980? So I would have been about, about yeah, seven or eight seven, years old. Yeah. And so, yeah, and not just the, the hit, but just every single album track is part of my childhood. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, for me, it's, it's, it is a, just a, well, I can't say it's a flawless album. As I said, the, the ballads, the ballads are the weak links on this one, but um, anything up tempo, I mean, it just really, it, it, you know, he shifted gears. He, he wasn't sitting at the piano. He was up and moving around. And, you know, the live performances, you know, it's so energized when he gets yeah, to the track. There might have been a lot of cocaine houses. involved, too. But. Oh, I, I'm sure there. I, I remember the video for All for Lena. Right? He looks <laughs> a little coked out of Yeah, that he's he just, uh, he. Yeah, I, I would <laughs> argue question. close to the borderline. It didn't, but it might have made my top least favorite. It's not one of my favorites. It's, I, I think there are songs far worse. See, like we talked about last week with Easy Money, I think Billy Joel pays homage to lots of people that inspired him, and usually he can pull it off. I think there are times where he just goes a little bit too far, hmm. and so I felt that way with Easy Money, and I kind of feel that way with Close to the Well. He's just trying to be a little too hip. Like, he needs to stay in his lane a little bit. I can't can't. But I can't there. blame him for trying and for experimenting no. because there are a lot of risks that he took that paid off. Yeah, well, absolutely. So, I mean, I give him credit for it. Now, close to the borderline, it's, I always thought that Taco Bell should have used it for a promo spot, you know, close to the borderline. If the taco's a buck 380? Yeah, buck, (laughs) yes. Um, No, it's a hard rocking tune. Um, I mean, I still like it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I still like it. It wouldn't make my least favorite or or what I would consider the worst songs because it's one that I find myself enjoying and singing along to. There's so much nostalgia connected to every single Billy Joel song, even the my top five least favorite ones that yeah, I compiled yeah, are ones that I won't turn off because they're so ingrained in, right. in, in my past. Agreed. All right. Well, my number one, that was my number two, by the way. So oh, when okay. I get there, I'll have to pick another one. My number one uh, is from my favorite album, Turnstiles. Mm, okay. And it's it, it, the album. Okay. So I mentioned how Glass Houses was the first album one of all rock and roll that I kind of knew top to bottom. Then I want to say when I started listening to music, of course, Innocent Man I had on vinyl. And then on vinyl, I had the two disc double set Greatest Hits Volumes 1 and 2. Sure. And I listened to that thing, man, just all the time. And I remember one summer just listening to that constantly. And 
it got me to that point, and this may happen with you. You know, a lot, of, a lot of times you start with the greatest hits package, and then you but you don't go any further with that. Right. And sometimes you get to a point it's like, all right, I need more. I need to get a little bit deeper with this artist. And so I remember I was on vacation, and we were at one of those discount stores, like like a Walmart, but not you know. And they had those big bins of like discount cassette tapes. <laughs> yes. And I remember shuffling through that, and, and there was a cassette tape version of Turnstiles. It was like three ninety nine. That was easy to convince my parents to, to buy that for me. And I remember sitting on the beach later that day, popping it into my Walkman, and blew me away. Yes. Blew me away. I mean, that, and of course, he had two albums before, that, actually three, if you count Cold Spring Harbor. Cold Spring Harbor was kind of his independent label piano, right. which had some strong songs on them, but just needed to mature a little bit. Right. Needed a producer, needed a band, and so on. And then he had Piano Man and Street Life Serenade. After that, he decided he'd try to start kind of producing on, I believe he produced Turnstiles himself. Yes, and, and he brought his touring band with him. There were, you know, he wasn't backed by studio Correct. Uh, musicians for the first time. And, 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 and he came back to New York, which is big on this album. And oh, it's yes. all over this album where he decides to leave the West Coast. He actually had gone out to the West Coast to try to wait out the, the, that indie contract he had, I think it was Family Productions. Yes. They mastered the, the album wrong. He sounded like a chipmunk. It's a, it's, a, it's a big story. But basically, he was just trying to wait them out so they would drop his contract so he could look to get signed um, by someone else. And eventually, he was signed by, by Columbia. But after a couple of years, he decided to come back home to New York. And so this is kind of his New York album, too. And I just love it because it really is it's the first glimpse of the great songwriter. He had great songs before this, but you can really tell, and this is right before The Stranger, so this is kind of the warm-up to, to that masterpiece that's to come. And I just, yeah, a lot of these songs, you could, you could argue, could have been produced a little bit better. This is right before Phil Ramone took over. Um, in fact, we'll talk about Songs in the Attic a little bit later, too, because that was Phil Ramone's attempt to kind of go back to some of these older songs and Correct. give them the production they deserved. So it's a little bit raw, but it's still my favorite album, and after all that, I'm choosing Summer Highland Falls. Okay. I, we have a match. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that one's further down my list, but yes, we do have a match. In fact, I was going to, I, boy, I blew it. I was going to do my thing here where I was going to have you guess, because I, I was going to say it's a song with no chorus, and the title never appears in the lyrics, um, and it's a song about uh, you know manic depression, <laughs> you know? Um, and not just... Lyrically, is it about manic depression? And, and, and Joel himself has had some, and he's been very forthcoming with some of his issues and, and some mental health issues that he's dealt with. And manic depression is one, especially when he was younger. But what I love about it is it's just a great song to begin with. I mean, but the piano yes. part. And, you know, his, his left hand, which is the bass clef, is kind of, you know, doing this kind of slower, moodier thing. Yeah, it's the depressive. And his right hand has this bouncy melody, which is the manic. The manic, yes. And that's one reason I could, I tried to play piano, and I can't just, I can't separate the two hemispheres of my brain and do two different things with two different hands. But, you know, he is able to not only, obviously, play piano, but just different tempos with each hand. And he just composed a song that musically represents manic depression, not to mention the lyrics. So, I, you know, it's one of those, it's, it, this is probably the song that made me a Billy Joel fan. Like I liked all the hits, like I mentioned, but this is the this is the song that said, "Boy, this is some." There's something different about this guy. Mm-hmm. 
at the best of times But they're the only times I've ever known And I believe there is a time for meditation In cathedrals of our own Now I have seen that sad surrender in my lover's eyes For we are always what our situations hand us And see the sadness or euphoria You know, I used to jokingly refer to this as the thesaurus song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it felt like he just went in and just started... He does use a lot of Scrabble words uh, yes, in this song. Yes, he does. Yeah. Um, but no, I, you know... Highland Falls, New York. It, it's you know a small town in, in upstate New York, and that's where he, his wife Elizabeth at the time, and um, his stepson uh, stepson Sean uh, first lived upon their return from L.A. to New York in in, in or about 1975. And by the way, kiddos, any like really a song about a woman screwing a guy over is about Elizabeth in the oh, early yeah. part of his yeah, career. Well, we'll get to that. Later. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it is just you know. I, well, ostensibly about the give and take, yin and yang of, of life and relationships, the song is also about the ambivalence that we all face individually and collectively as we analyze our relationships and our lives. Um, and as we get older and move on and as we stand upon the ledges of our lives, you know, which, you know, is a, a line from the song. It is um, just, it's it's fantastic. And, you know, for a while it seemed that only hardcore Billy Joel fans even knew the song. Uh, perhaps because the title is somewhat vague. Um, it's it's really too bad because for all the critics who have panned Billy Joel for songs such as We Didn't Start the Fire or Uptown Girl, um, this song is actually a stunning and beautiful rebuttal. Uh, over the years, as Joel has reintroduced it in his live performances, it, it has become much more appreciated and recognized. Um, uh, he actually he plays it live, I think. Yeah, now he as does well. now. Yeah. Uh, actually, almost every concert. Um, you know, I'm really surprised that there are so few cover versions of this song. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, I, I just imagine Tori Amos or Alicia Keys, Sarah Bareilles, you know, there are a lot of artists that I think would jump on the opportunity to cover this. And I don't know if it's just that they don't know the song or, or what it may be, but it, it's just, it's one of his most beautiful uh Piano ballads. Yeah, I mean, lyrically, it's a little bit overdramatic, like you say, on the ledges of our lives and our respected similarities. Oh, yes. I mean, the, you know, the, the the rhymes and the cadences, they work, but the words themselves, it feels a little stuffy. But that's okay, because like I said, this is the primer for his great stuff to come. This is the warm-up. This is right before he emerges as this incredible songwriter. And this song is just, it's... I mean, probably my favorite Billy Joel. I mean, I will always distinguish between favorite and, and greatest. Yes. I, I think those are two different lists. They are. So I have my five, what I think are the greatest Billy Joel songs. Um, this is in my top five favorite Billy Joel songs. Yeah, uh, mine as well. I, I, I kind of numbered mine 10 to 1, uh, almost as a, well, I, I really did. I made it a top 10 list, um, which I usually don't do for our, our episodes. Um, Summer Highland Falls actually came in at number four. Um, so yeah, that top, was, top that five was songs. My number one. However, I tried. I didn't actually do a pure top ten because I wanted to keep my albums staggered. I. But you ruined that did, by, did by choosing uh, sleeping with the television on because now my my next pick is from Turnstiles also. Oh well, you could have gone first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, if you want staggered albums, I'm going to give it to you because right. my next pick, number nine, um, it comes from the Bridge. 
which was a 1986 release by Billy Joel. Um, you know, most music critics, they tend to rate the bridge fairly poorly. And well, it's certainly not the equal of The Stranger, 52nd Street, Innocent Man. It's, you know, the songwriting is still impressive. I would argue it's probably his last great album. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple, there are a couple of stinkers on, yeah, the, on the second but, but, side. But, but overwhelmingly, yeah. you know, he was still in, in top form. Um, as an album itself, it didn't work as well, but there are some really high moments on that album. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, there are plenty of hits here, including, you know, the smooth, adult contemporary balladry of This Is The Time, uh, the ruthless People Shuffle Modern Woman, and, you know, best of all, that... The gritty, I've always liked Modern Woman. I, I, I love it. And, and, you know, then you have the gritty rocker, A Matter of Trust, which finds Joel ditching his usual piano for the electric guitar. Um, you know, it's not only a great rocker and a fantastic melody, but I would say Matter of Trust also boasts some of Joel's most underrated set of lyrics. Yeah, no, um, that's a good, that's a good yeah. time. The, the non-singles are, are also very good. You, you have the fun and frenetic Running on Ice, which is reminiscent of New Wave Police, actually. Um, and then you have the, the muscular rocker Code of Silence, which he co-wrote and, uh, and performed as a duet with Cindy Lauper. Um, and then you have one of Joel's all-time catchiest uh, non-singles, um, and, and, you know, one of my absolute favorites, which is the big band-inspired Big Man on Mulberry Street. And we have, a, we have matched every single song. We have, yes. All so right. that's another yeah. match. Big Man on Mulberry Street. So I, I'm you keeping know. track this time of how many we have to pick. <laughs> it's a brassy and swinging jazz tune uh, akin to the songs on 52nd Street. Right. And, and, and I would argue New York State of Mind from, from Turnstiles uh, you know, also has been performed as a jazz staple now by many. Um, but Big Man on Mulberry Street is even more overtly jazz. Um, the, the song depicts a character who acts like a big shot, but secretly knows that it's all just a show. And he has self-awareness and fears being discovered as a phony. He, you know, rhetorically asks himself, so tell me, what am I trying to prove? You know, um, and at the same time, though, in the last line of the song, we discover that he also wants to be discovered. You know, he wants someone to to, to know the real him. Instead of asking, what if somebody finds out who I am? You know, he instead laments, what if nobody finds out who I am? Um, you know, he recognizes that it's better to be discovered, to be known for who you really are, and rather than, you know, lead a phony life where no one ever knows the real you. Um, there's, there's nothing too profound here. I mean, the song is mostly just a fun, bluesy jazz jaunt that, that really swings. Were you a Moonlighting fan? Did well, you watch yeah, Moonlighting? Yes, okay. I, that's on my notes as well because yeah. uh, I believe it was the episode where Maddie's having, it's like a fantasy sequence about liking David, yes. but it also, like her past boyfriend is also yeah, involved Mark in Carmen it. Is, yeah, And yep. so it's like it's like a seven or eight minute choreographed like 
big deal type fantasy sequence in Moonlight. It was one of the most innovative, most creative shows on television. Um, and yeah, it would, well, it introduced the world to to Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it just. Um, but yeah, I, just to, just the taming of the shrew episode alone just is so worth the money. So but um, yeah, no, Big Man on Mulberry Street. You know, I a few years ago, I've been to, I've been to the the big city uh, a few times. Um, but but on my last trip. To, to New York, I actually and, and my my wife played along. She was a good sport. I actually made the the, the journey. I actually started uh, right there where um, you know Mulberry Street intersects um, with House Street, and I walked the entire length of it, taking photos like you know like I'm in a, a you feel like you're a big man. Yeah, and and I literally I walked the entire stretch and marked every landmark from the song um, because I just wanted to, you know, be the big man on Mulberry Street. And I did. I walked from Canal or from House Street to Canal Street. And um, yeah, it it was just really, it was one of the coolest things I've ever done on a trip to New York City. Um, But no, I I love it. That was also a Dr. Seuss book, right? To Think It Happened on Mulberry Street is one of his earlier books. Yeah. I remember when this song came out, I thought, oh, well, I... There is a Mulberry Street, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and it, it runs right through Little Italy. Is, okay. Is, well, that, that's Mulberry Street, is Little Italy. Makes sense. And yeah, no, I know. It, it was so cool to do it. I, I just, I, as I've gotten older, I, you know, I've, I've said this before in our previous episodes, but, you know, we really haven't had a, any cause for me to, to bring, you know, the, the songs to the episodes. But I've, I've really become a jazz fan. And for that reason alone, Big Man on Mulberry Street is, you know, it's hands down one of my. Ten favorite songs. Well, now, now I got to go to New York and do. And I was just in New York last summer. Really? I didn't think to do that. I have to show you my the, the photos. Yeah, I have like my little album of me walking. Down. It, it, I, I looked like a tourist. I, I promise you that. But it was it was that's cool. It was awesome. Yeah, I'll those pictures. It. Looking forward to it. Actually, I'm, I apologize. That was not a, a direct match. That was an alternate match. Mm. It was not on my top ten. So okay, we're good there. All right. So next one. You're right. We'll have a different album. That was good. Yeah. Back to Turnstiles, okay. which, if I hadn't mentioned, came out in 1976. We're going to have another match, I have no doubt. Uh, and this one is uh, Miami 2017. We have another match. Yep. <laughs> I've seen the lights go out on Broadway, subtitle. And th- this is a song that, it, that does get live love. Um, he does play this live, especially since, since 9-11, because it kind of took on a different meaning after 9-11. Yes, but, it did. Um, Miami 2017 was written, again, this is kind of his return to New York album. So you have Say Goodbye to Hollywood, which starts the album. You do have New York State of Mind. Um, I already talked about um, Summer Highland Falls. So there are all sorts of New York-themed um, songs on this. And even though this is called Miami 2017, it's actually a New York song because, it, the, it, of course, we were pretty young at the time. But at the height of the 70s, New York was really in a tough spot um, before Times Square was cleaned up. When you know it was just kind of a dirty city. There was a lot of crime, crime, and, drugs, prostitution, and t- Times Square was largely just porn theaters. Right, I mean, exactly. It, yeah, it's and and the mayor even appealed to the federal government, and and Gerald Ford gave them no help. And so there was this whole idea that what happens if New York just kind of com- you know combusts on itself? And so Joel kind of took that idea and thought, boy, what if that actually happens? Uh, and we all have to move somewhere else. And so he wrote this from a perspective of if he were a grandfather speaking to his grandchildren and telling them about the lights going out in, in uh, 2017, living in Miami at the time, telling the story. And it is. It's kind of a science fiction-y 
uh, you know, buildings being torn down and bridges being blown up and uh, the Yankees put up for free and all sorts of <laughs> yeah. different things happening. I guess you have to be a true New Yorker to kind of get all the references, but uh, it's just a great, again, it's a great melody. I love the fact that he dabbled in this kind of dystopian uh, realm, which is something he doesn't normally do. And, and yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, he said, you know, several times since 9 11 that, you know, he wrote it as a science fiction tune, never, never once suspecting that, you know, the events could actually happen. And then after 9 11, you know, the song took on an entirely different meaning because, you know, he did see the mighty skyline fall. Right. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. It was, uh, you know, October 29th, 1975, uh, President Gerald Ford gave a speech where he made it clear that the U.S. government would not bail out New York City to keep it from bankruptcy. And then the next day, the headline in the Daily News read, Ford to City, drop dead. Right, right. And, and yeah, famously. Uh, which, by the way, Ford never actually said those <laughs> words. And the sensationalist headline hurt him in the next election, which led... Uh, you know, he lost to Jimmy Carter, but uh, it was that headline because Joel was actually in L.A. still when the headline came out. Right. And, you know, all the Californians were saying, basically, let New York die. Who cares? And that was when Joel said, uh, if, if New York's going to go down, I'm going to go down. Which with is, it. yeah, one reason yeah. he went back. Seen lights so on Broadway. I saw the Empire State lay low. first time that I heard this song, okay, so kind of in my chronology of, of Billy Joel fandom, uh, I mentioned Glass Houses, my dad played Glass Houses, owning An Innocent Man and Greatest Hits 1 and 2, and then getting turnstiles in the cassette discount bin. I was also an avid library borrower. Oh, I was too. I mentioned, I think last week, uh, I'd get on my bike and go down to the, the downtown library to read Billboard. There were closer libraries to my house, but that's the only one that had Billboard. And actually, there was one right down the street, and I would go and I would borrow records and and eventually CDs by the bulk and you know I made a made, made copy of, of of a few of them here and there and one that I picked up one LP that I picked up very early on so again this is probably mid mid 80s with songs in the attic yep and I remember looking over the, the, the I didn't recognize any of the songs oh she's got away I recognized but that was it and so I took it home and I remember listening to it and boy that if turnstiles didn't cement my fandom this completely did because um, actually come to think of it this might have been before Turnstiles because I would have recognized some of the songs on Songs yeah. in the Attic right true so yeah so maybe it had been a little bit before that but uh, Miami 2017 was one of those standout songs well, it, it, it's the first track on the oh, album oh is it well that yeah. makes sense yeah. and, and, and the idea was that you know Phil Ramone recognized all these great songs that Billy Joel had, had written and recorded prior to, to meeting him and understood that with a proper producer and, and an actual band, not session musicians, these songs could really, really shine. 
of course, they didn't want to recut them and put out another album of material that, you know, just been put out several years before. So they kind of came up with a compromise of coming up with a live album uh, where some of them are, it feels like larger audiences and some are sm- smaller audiences, but they're versions of the song where Phil Ramone was able to kind of, you know, work his magic and kind of rearrange composition and so forth and they 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 really do even though i'm not a big live album person per se uh it really does show the strength of these songs oh it does and you know we've talked about you know what inspired or influenced the song but we haven't talked about it musically um just just as a final note you know if if you're not familiar with the song it, it starts slowly with with a very elegant and intricate piano introduction and then it suddenly picks up the tempo uh in the first chorus and becomes one of joel's really most most satisfying rockers um you know and then the song at, at its end returns um to that same elegant piano it, it's just it, it's it's phenomenal yep it is all right well that was my number seven so, so we, we have matched on every single song so far we have at but, least with with alternates or with our main list yes but this time i can't stagger the albums for you because my number eight is from turnstiles and it is Prelude, Angry Young Man. We have another match. Um, we have another match. Yeah, it, it uh, arguably, like like we've said, Turnstiles was his first genuinely great album. You know, uh, Joel finally found the style that worked best for him, and for the first time on record, he doesn't sound like anyone but himself. Um, and you know, ironically and sadly, the album actually fared poorly upon its initial release it, it actually stopped at number 122 and and failed to yield any top 40 singles say goodbye to hollywood which is also on songs in the attic that version right um made the top 45 years later songs in the attic had that and i believe she's, well, she's got, got away. away and they might have released everybody wants you now from that but it didn't hit i don't think ah uh, i'm not sure if that was released as a single. maybe not maybe not um but yeah it you know it's it really is there there are only eight songs on on the album and um, there's only one that, that I think uh, is misguided. It's actually in my top five worst. So, All she wants to do is dance? Yeah. And the only reason it makes me... You don't like songs t- about tomatoes? Uh, back when, yeah. <laughs> Wish you were back in the good old days when tomatoes were cheaper, yeah. I, um, you know, the, it's, it's a fun song, but the only reason it makes my top five worst is because if not for that song, Turnstiles would be flawless. It would be a perfect album. It would be a yes, perfect album. No doubt. That's a, it's um, a fun little throwaway. It's a B-side. Yeah, it is. Um, but Prelude, Angry Young Man, I mean, it, first of all, it's been the opening song for Billy Joel's concerts in recent years, and it, it's an appropriate one. Well, and it has to because it, it, it's so rigorous uh, of physically. Oh, yes. It's so physically taxing that Joel, I think a couple times he played it at the end and he realized he didn't have the, 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 the stamina. Energy, yeah. <laughs> so he actually, it's kind of a good way for him to cleanse the uh, the adrenaline when walking on stage. Yes. And then he can kind of relax the rest of the show. Yeah, it, 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 it's an unbelievable staccato piano and, and crashing cymbals, you know, in the prelude. And then, you know, that immediately grabs your attention and then it leads directly into the rapid fire lyrics of Angry Young Man.
Joe has often said that the piano is a percussive instrument. You strike it. And, um, you know, certainly that, that would be true of, of this song. Uh, he's likened the opening of Prelude, Angry Young Man, to Wipeout by the Safaris. Yeah, actually. it was kind of as homage to Wipeout. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, Joel, in the song, he's both sympathetic and sick of the titular angry young man who stubbornly clings to his ideals and notions from the 1960s uh, to the point of boring everyone. And while he has his fist in the air, he sticks his head in the sand. And the angry young man, you know, certainly is self-delusional. He sits in a locked room with his maps and his medals laid out on the floor. Um, in the bridge, Joel turns to his own past days of consciousness and righteous rage and points out that just surviving is a noble fight and that, you know, life goes on no matter who is wrong or right. It, it, it's actually, you know, it, it is, it's one of the most, of, of his songs, I would say it's, it's one of the most philosophical. There's a place in the world for the angry young man With his working class ties and his radical plans He refuses to bend, he refuses to crawl And he's always at home with his back to the wall And he's proud of his scars and the battles he's lost And he struggles and bleeds as he hangs on his cross And he likes to be known as the angry young man do you feel like and i guess both interpretations are valid that billy joel is an, as an older person kind of, you know, dismissing a younger person with the wisdom and the perspective? Or do you feel like, this is how I've always felt, that it's Billy Joel having grown up and he's looking back at himself as a younger man and he's basically, you know, admonishing his, his older self? Yeah, I, I've actually gone back and forth with both interpretations. Um, and, and they both fit, you know. But but certainly, you know, the the angry, old, the angry um, you know, young man of, 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 of the song, is it's a sentiment that many baby boomers may have felt in the mid-70s as to the idealism of the 60s that had waned. Um, But no, Joe has said that, you know, the song was based on one of his former tour managers, actually, who apparently always had a chip on his shoulder about many things, and he had a difficult time getting along with him, and and that's why he, you know, um, wrote the song. So I I did come across that. But it is just, I don't know that he has any other song that just is so... That, that offers such an adrenaline rush. I mean, it just the thirty-second notes on the on the piano. It is just, you know, I, I don't even know how he manages to pull it off. I mean, it really showcases his finest work on on the keys, and it's just, you know, without question, one of his top ten greatest non-singles. Yeah, and like I mentioned, that that time of my life when it all kind of came together for me, turnstiles and and songs in the attic. I also, and I know you were the same way, of course, at this time we didn't know each other, but I was also really keen on what I called like epic songs. And these were songs by bands that were usually, you know, over five minutes long. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, American Pie would be an example, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, Jungle Land. And so Joel has a couple of these epic songs. Yes. And this is one of them. And so, yeah, this was just catnip for, for me at the time, totally. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. If if you're new to, to Joel's non singles, when you give this one a listen, you'll, I mean you'll be you'll be a convert. And he still plays it live. He does. Yes. So he stays sharp. All right. All right. 
So, my next one, I have a feeling this is also going to be a match. Well, everything else has. It is not about a country. It is about a sports bar. That would be my number six. <laughs> we yep. knew this one had to be on here. This is the song that we hinted. This is the song that if I... Now, it'd be interesting to see if our memories are the same on this one. But Alan and I, you know, we went to different elementary schools and different middle schools, but then one went to the same high school. And I think it was probably junior year. We were in... Language arts. Language arts. Mrs. Forbes' class, if I remember correctly. Yes. And we were seated near each other. And I'm sure we had some cursory conversations, but at some point... Billy Joel came up and you know I guess this is kind of the test if you're a fan of any band you know you find out how much of a fan the other person really is and I'm not sure which one of us threw it out or how or whatever the the song Zanzibar came up and I immediately knew okay yeah this guy is a Billy Joel fan because he knows Zanzibar Zanzibar is on 52nd Street it was not a single it was not a hit uh, I don't. Does he play it live? Maybe sometimes recently he's I played it live. I don't think. Um, well, actually, no, no. He did. I did see him play it live. Okay. The last concert I went to. So yeah, he has. He has now included it in, in his set. Um, but for the longest time, it, it just you know it, it was on a shelf collecting. Yes. It's it just it's a it's one of those great great songs that in 1990 or 89 or whatever. Uh, unless you were a huge Billy Joel fan, you would have no clue. Um, about you know anything about Zanzibar, Fifty um, Second Street of course was his follow up to The Stranger, which was his, his superstar pop masterpiece that sold and made, made him a you know, household name and a bona fide uh, superstar. And you know Fifty Second Street's a little bit grittier, I think. Oh yeah. Uh, like you say, there are some songs that are a little bit jazzier. Uh, this is essentially just a song about a guy trying to pick up a waitress. Yeah. And he had come up with the music first, and he was kind of going over with Phil Ramone and. Phil Ramone was helping him through it, and, and for whatever reason, the, the, the Zanzibar, the, the word Zanzibar came up, but he didn't necessarily want to write a song about Zanzibar. Yes. So one of the two, I'm not sure which, came up with the idea about setting it in a, making it a sports bar in New York City. And so you could describe the sights and the sounds, the sports being played on the television, while this guy is basically trying to pick up a waitress. Fifty Second Street uh, was, is, and I'm sure will always remain my favorite album. I, I know yours is Turnstiles, mine is Fifty Second Street, um, and you know, it, it never quite reached the acclaim of The Stranger, but but I, it's every bit as good, and it's you know, it, it's better known predecessor, you know, uh, Stranger, just like it. That there are a handful of massive hits on Fifty Second Street. Yeah, let's see, Moving Out, Big yeah. Shot. Yep. Honesty. Yep. And, and you know, but what's so surprising is just how strong the non-singles are. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, talk much about them because 
half of them are on my, right, <laughs> my, right. my list. You'll hear me talk about them anyway. But yeah, Joel, he wanted to write a jazzy piece, and the title Zanzibar was stuck in his head, like you said. Um, and, you know, the, the song, it, I, what I love too is that it's so laden with baseball and sports metaphors. Right. You know, me, I'm trying just to get to second base, and I'd steal it if she only gave me the sign. He mentions know. Pete Rose, although he's changed the lyrics now. He, he has, yeah. Um, and, in, in and, you know, it, it's interesting because Joel, he's, he's, you know, New Yorker, but the Yankees are not his team. He's a Mets fan. Yeah, right. Um, you know, he's always been a fan of the Mets and, and always, I mean, he, he was, he did that, you know, those final performances at Shea Stadium. Um, you know, but yeah, the, the song begins with a short, slow section, but then it moves to a shuffle rhythm. Uh, it contains two brilliant trumpet solos that were played by the legendary jazz trumpeter Freddie Hubbard. Cover of Fifty Second Street is Billy Joel holding a, a, a the trumpet. trumpet. Yeah, uh, I don't know if he was trying to give people the idea that he actually played the trumpet solo, or if the record company just thought he would look cool holding the trumpet. I I don't know which. Um, but if I'm Freddie Hubbard, I'm a little bit ticked about that. Well, <laughs> I think more than anything, he was just trying to set the tone for the album. It's kind of um, like Steve Ray Vaughan playing the guitar solo on Let's Dance or David Bowie, but in the video, David Bowie yeah. is playing guitar. Uh, Steve Ray Vaughan, I think, would be pretty upset by that. Yeah. Well, Agreed, um, but now I, the the you know the song's bridge it begins with this dreamy keyboard section, which leads into the first trumpet solo, and then the urgency and sexiness of that trumpet part is just enhanced by the ascending and descending line that's played on bass guitar beneath the solo. Um, yeah, the, the second solo comes at the end of the song and it goes into the fade out, but Joel said that after playing with Hubbard because I mean, Hubbard was. Oh, he's a legend. He was a mastermind, yeah. He was a genius on the instrument. After playing with Hubbard on the song, Lip, drummer Liberty DeVito actually turned to Joel and said, now I feel like a grown-up. Right, right, uh, right. So, yeah, it's a great song. Um, it did not get much recognition outside of the AOR radio format at the time. Uh, but now, yeah, it, it has become increasingly a part of Joel's live concerts. And and, and I would argue this is his Steely Dan song. It is. Oh, and uh, I think a lot of... Most critics actually compare it. To it's Steely a Steely Dan song, not only because of the jazz influence, but because it's about a guy in a bar drinking, which is pretty much every Steely Dan song. Yeah, it is. And you're right. I, you know, Rose, he knows he's such a uh, credit to the game. Now when he performs, he, he sings, Rose, he knows he'll never make the Hall of Fame. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, but no, this was the song. You and I, uh, we were in language arts. We, I don't even know how we got on the topic quite frankly but yeah we, we started talking Zanzibar like you um, had with me I knew immediately the, the fact that you knew this song you know it, it was it's like a secret password like it, you're in the club really if you was. know this yeah. song and, and from that moment I mean we we were kind of inseparable in high school I mean and we were Billy Joel obsessed folks and we're talking there was a two year period where pretty much we listened to nothing but 
village. Yeah, oil. I mean, you introduced me to the oldies, and I introduced you to some alternative. But right. other than that, it was pretty much it all Billy Joel. All Billy Joel all the time. I, there's only been one other musician in my life that I went through a period uh, similar to that, and that would be Sam Cooke, you know, in middle school. But, yeah, Billy Joel, he just – and, it, you know, it's funny because I find myself – I don't listen to Billy Joel that often anymore, um, which, you know – I, I guess I didn't even realize until I was starting to prep for this this episode, and I went back and listened to so. Well, I listened to his entire catalog actually, and it, it just dawned on me that I hadn't heard these songs. Some of them, you know, in five, ten years. So I, I don't know when I stopped listening to him regularly, but um, now I, I just I you know I, I have the bug, so I don't think he's going to go away now that I've reintroduced myself to some of you know some of his works. Okay. Right, your turn. All right. Well, uh, my next song uh, would have been, um, actually, uh, Zanzibar was, was my next song. Um, so I am, I'm going to stay on the same album, um, but I am going to uh, choose Rosalinda's Eyes. And we have a match on my alternate list. Okay. Yeah, well, this was my alternates as well. So, um, you know, uh, the song... It is just a majestic melody. I mean, it's, it, you know, of, the, of this gently swaying, marimba-laden, uh, you know, tribute, really, to his mom. Um, it, it's one of Joe's most lovely and sophisticated melodies. It, it's right up there with Just the Way You Are, in fact. Yet it's not one you ever run into on the radio, and it's consequently one of the greatest gems to be uncovered from listening to his albums in full. Um, Ro- Rosalind's Eyes is another Latin-style tune by Joel, which is just gorgeous and, and heartwarming. Uh, the song was never released as a single, but it was played on the radio frequently in the late 70s and early 80s um, on AOR again. Uh, it's, it's curious as to why this song never became part of Billy's concert set, and, and he largely ignores it today, which I've never, never understood why. Uh, this is a poignant and a beautiful song. You know, it, it Joel sings from the perspective of a working musician who plays, who pay, uh, plays for union wages in wedding clothes, and he yearns for his native Cuba. And hardly anyone sees how good he is except for the lovely Rosalinda, um, through whom he can see Cuba in her eyes, and the crazy Latin line, um, you know, it may not be politically correct today, but the sentiment of the song is lovely. Uh, this has to be one of Joel's most underappreciated songs. Um, the lyrics, Oh Havana, I've been searching for you everywhere, and though I'll never be there, I know what I could see there. I can always find my Cuban skies in Rosalinda's eyes. Skies. 
Joel has said that this was the song that his father, Howard, um, should have written for his mother, is really what it is. Um, and yeah, he wrote it from that perspective. You know, he, he wanted to write a song for his mother in his father's voice, which is a really, you know, it's, it's to me, that, that, that alone makes this song, you know, just so genuinely different from very nearly any ballad that I, that I know. Um, and it, it's just, it's a beautiful song from, from start to finish. Well, and we, we also talked about Freaks and Geeks a couple weeks ago. And if you're a Freaks and Geeks fan, you'll know the Billy Joel episode. It's actually about halfway through the season. It was called uh, Carded and Discarded. And if you remember that, that episode, um, the, the freaks were trying to get a fake idea so they could go drink at this club when they find out their guidance counselor is in the band um, and calls them out. But the geek portion of that was when a new student shows up at, at the school, which is a Marine, and she's like super cool. And she doesn't know that she's cool. And so the geeks are trying to prevent the other cool kids from the school to get to know her so they can keep her to themselves. And uh, it's called the Billy Joel episode because it features all Billy Joel songs, including Rosalind's Eyes, Set Toi, I Know You're Not a Big Fan. Yeah, we'll get uh, to that one. <laughs> and, and, and Don't Ask Me Why are the three prominent ones. So I remember, again, watch, if I wasn't already a huge fan of Freaks and Geeks, when you hear Rosalinda's Eyes um, come on a TV show from the early 2000s, that says a lot. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, but, nope, that would be my next pick. It was my first... First choice on my alternate list, and I got to use it. So I'm sure I'll be hit. Well, I know I'm hitting the alternate list at least one well, more I have, time. Well, I have two alternates coming up, so. I'm sure I have more than the two because we're going to match as we. Well, this next one, I'm, the only way we don't match in this next one is if you just left it off your list because you assumed I would pick it. Because this is arguably um, the best known Billy Joel song that was not a single. Okay. And that is Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. That is my number one. So, yes, it is a match. All right. Yep. So, Scenes from Dying Restaurant. This is, I think, the first one from The Stranger. We've uh, finally arrived at uh, 1977 masterpiece, The Stranger. And, again, it's one of those epic songs. I just mentioned I was into those epic songs, those long songs that, you know, just usually had, like, large instrumental portions to them and um, had grand ideas, maybe stories and so on. And this one has all of that. And it was kind of inspired by what George Martin did to the second half of Abbey Road. A bottle of red, a bottle of whites. It all depends upon your appetite. I'll meet you anytime you want in our Italian restaurant.
This one, I distinctly remember where I was the first time I heard it. So I'm back on the beach again. I spent a lot of time on the beach. It might have been the same summer that I had turnstiles. It probably was because I'm going through this big Billy Joel thing. And I'm sitting on the beach. And, you know, you always get that that group next to you that has a boom box and they play music that nobody else wants to hear. Right. Well, they had just they had a radio station on. And all of a sudden, this song came on. And I knew it was Billy Joel. I could tell stylistically. I could tell, um, you know, his, his vocal style. And I'd never heard it before. And so I went into the slow part, you know, bottle red, bottle white. And then went into the second part with Brenda and Eddie. And I mean, it, it, immediately I was like, okay, I know this is Billy Joel. The song is incredible. But what is it? And didn't have, didn't have the internet, right? How many times are we going to say that? Didn't have the internet. <laughs> so how am I going to figure out what Billy Joel song this is? You know, other than just going up and randomly asking people. In fact, I think when I got home from vacation, I probably went to Camelot Music and went up to the clerk and said, I know it's by Billy Joel and it's a song and it had like a song within a song and it was about wine. And, and I think the clerk says, oh, I think, I think you want The Stranger, my friend. That scene's yes. from an Italian restaurant. Yeah. So, wow, what, what a song. Yeah, well, I, you know, it, it's considered by many, myself included, to really be Joel's masterpiece. Um, I, 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 I know you're favored by him. Um, but yeah, Scenes has always been my number one, so it was the last of my... my What's my favorite by him? Oh, it's got to be New York State of Mind. It always was. We'll get there. Oh, has it changed? No, no, I'm not saying oh, that. I'm okay. just saying we'll get there. Oh, oh, okay. Um, but no, it's... Uh, yeah, and to me and, and to most, you know, fans, it really is, Scenes is really considered to be his masterpiece. It's just a, a pop rock suite for the ages. I mean, it's it's both a sweeping epic of middle-class life as well as an intimate song. It's a glimpse into a private conversation between two old friends reminiscing about their high school days of leather jackets and tight blue jeans and their past hopes and aspirations. One reviewer um, jokingly referred to the song as a remembrance of things pasta. You know, so it's, oh yeah, well yeah. yeah. So I mean, it, which makes sense. I mean, I don't know that the pun is. It's probably a groaner, but I, <laughs> I appreciated it. Um, the song, you know, it begins as that romantic, wistful ballad with a simple piano introduction, accompanied by an accordion and then sweeping strings. Uh, the couple is meeting at the Italian restaurant, and we soon discovered that this is a meeting of old friends rather than a romantic couple, at least you know, not at this moment. And then the beautiful saxophone solo transports us back in time to the couple's teenage years. Yeah, that's, I, I erroneously said the second, Render and is the third part. The yeah. second part is the village green and exact, yeah. tight blue jeans. Yeah, and then they reminisce, you know, of course, about the good old days, about the sweet romantic teenage nights. The line, drop a dime in the box and play a song about New Orleans is cleverly followed by a Dixieland-like musical segue that then leads to the story of Brenda and Eddie. Brenda and Eddie were the popular steadies and the king and the queen of the farm. Riding around with the car top down and the radio on. Nobody looks any finer. Always more of a hit at the Parkway Diner. We never knew we could want more than that out of life. Sure, Brenda and Eddie would always know how to survive. All right, 
well, my next song, I, I told you it's my favorite album, and I'm about to go right back to it. Um, it's from 52nd Street, again, and this one is Until the Night. Righteous um, Brothers. Yes. You know, five years before Billy Joel's affection for the 50s and 60s doo-wop and soul music, you know, culminated in, in that concept album, An Innocent Man, uh, his old school influences were on display in this, you know, slow building ballad. I mean, it's... Is this, this is the first song, by the way, we don't have a match. Really? You don't have Until the Night? Not, okay. not in my top 20. Okay. No. Yeah, first one. Um, yeah, it, it's one of Joel's, I think, one of Joel's very best songs. Um, though you seldom hear it or hear about it. Um, in their review of the album, Rolling Stone said that, you know, the this underrated epic was, uh, you know, the sonic masterpiece of 52nd Street. And, and really, I think they were right. Um, as the singer yearns to find refuge in his lover's arms after a long day, the music soars with this growing anticipation. Uh, he's joined by his own multi-tracked baritone tenor vocals, uh, you know, it's layered, paying tribute to the contrasting harmonies of the Righteous Brothers. Um, and, you know, the layered instrumentation, you know, is reminiscent of Phil Spector's Wall of Sound uh, on top of that, including swelling strings, acoustic guitars, Latin-flavored castanets, and just a blasting sax solo from Joe regular Richie Cannata. Uh, it, it's one of his finest vocal performances. That, that last verse is just yeah. incredible. Yeah, it, you know, it masters both the, the resonant bass of Bill Medley and the yearning tenor of Bobby Hatfield. Musically and lyrically, I, the verses, you know, they slowly layer and build up into a dramatic crescendo that explodes into the impassioned chorus until the night when I see you again. Um, the imagery in the song's bridge evokes a city at dusk at the end of the workday, you know, when the last of the light has gone. And the cars and, turn their headlights on. Yeah. And, you know, weary workers, they pour into the streets and, and cars turn on their headlights to, to make the trek home to rest for the next day. And the singer has something else in mind. I mean, he's he's you know, on his way finally to his love. As others are closing it down, he and his love are going to open it up. You know, the contrast is there. While others go to sleep, they will just be starting to touch. It really is an us against the world or us in our bubble notion that will it, it'll resonate with anyone who has been caught in a, love for, a lover's rapture, you know, or, or clutches. And, you know, it's transcendent. Even the critics who, who had panned just the way you are admitted that Joel had written a gorgeous gem. Today I do be done I give my time to total strangers But now it feels as though the day goes on forever More than it ever Some considered it overly produced, um, which I think is fair. But then you know it well, was it was a Phil Spector. Phil Spector tribute. Is, yeah, it was a Phil Spector the definition tribute. Of exactly. Overly um, produced in a good way. Yeah, and just like Frankie Valli did a cover of Uptown Girl, the Four Seasons inspired Uptown Girl. Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers actually covered Until the Night. Oh, cool. Um, Medley's version can be found on his 1980 album Sweet Thunder. Um, 
but yeah, no, I, this song has always, I, I just, uh, I would say this and Zanzibar were the two songs that really drew me uh, initially to 52nd Street. It wasn't the same. It, I, I love my life, Big Shot, Honesty, but those were the two that I just, when I heard them, you know, that album was forever going to be my favorite Jules LPs. So there you go. That's my next one. Good song. No, I mean, it, it's it's not on my top 20 because it's a bad song. It's just there are so many good songs to choose from. Oh, yeah. Um, great, great tune. All right. Well, I, we probably won't have a match on this one either. So I think we're now, maybe we're past a lot of the matches and we're getting to some of the differentiation here between our, our, our tastes. Uh, this one also, surprise, surprise, is from Turnstiles. <laughs> and it's the first song on the second side. And I already talked about it last week at the end yes. of the episode because it's the one that I chose. Uh, and if you didn't hear it last week, basically, there's a song called James. And uh, it actually was a single. It didn't go anywhere. I'm surprised it was a single. It's one that very few people know unless, again, you know Turnstiles because he doesn't play it live. Uh, but it really is a great song, especially for somebody, you know, an older teenager trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. Because the it's actually it was written for a friend of his that was in one of his earlier bands who had expectations to go on and, and, and make a career of some sort, maybe in law or become a doctor. I'm not sure which. And this, this buddy of his wanted to, to make music. And so he was kind of torn. And I kind of felt that way a little bit, too, because, you know, I had big dreams of writing for a living or, or doing something artistic. But I also understood that that career path sometimes isn't the most secure, especially think about it, especially back in, in, the, in the 80s when you didn't have this explosion of media. You didn't have all these streaming services. You didn't have Spotify. I mean, there's so much media being made now that I would say, you, well, not with COVID now, but you'd have a better chance of maybe breaking in and, and finding, you know, a solid job in the entertainment industry now than you would have back then. And I remember people telling me, oh, you know, you want to go out to Hollywood, you want to write screenplays, you're going to park cars for five years, you're going to come home disgruntled, and you're going to have to get a job anyway. So you might as well skip all of that. And so there was that idea of not wanting to disappoint my parents and wanting to, to make something of myself. And I had, there were a lot of lawyers in my family, so I thought maybe that's what I'm destined to do. And, um, and so what did I do? I compromised. I chose teaching. <laughs> because, you know, there's an art to teaching. No, there is. And, and there's, there's so right. many opportunities to be creative um, and, and, and also write. I, I, I still write, but I can balance all of those things because I have a lot more free time than maybe some professions. Um, but it's still a stable job, you know, where I have health insurance and I have a, a paycheck that comes in every two weeks. So that, that was kind of my compromise between the two. Um, but this song, especially back then, just really consoled me sometimes when I was trying to figure out, you know, where I wanted to be in 10 years. Can you find release? And 
Will you ever change? Will you ever write your masterpiece? I also like the electric piano. It's very, you know, you talk about, you like the jazz side of things. It's a very Bob James-ish type sound with the piano, that electric piano going on there. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, you know, James, it's so prolific, really. I mean, it's, Joel, you know, he said now that he, he, he listens to the song and he feels that it's too preachy. You know, it's, it, who is he to give advice? I disagree with him. I, I think it is, you know, it, it is a song that anyone really fighting, you know, the, the, you know, the, the forces uh, that, that are falling upon them by family and, and, you know, family expectations. I think it's a song that they need to hear uh, because you really, you know, it's the truth. If you're, you know, do what's good for you or you're not good for anybody. You know, it, it's just, it's a beautiful song. It's a partial match. It was on my alternate list. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, it, it's very straightforward. There's very little to, you know, there's there's no no point in analyzing the, the lyrics. I mean, there's no scrutiny needed. It's just, it's a perfect song. And yeah, for years it, you know, it was, you know. And even I, more so, it's just a nice little melody. Again, yeah. listening to that for the first time on the beach and flipping the cassette over, it was just a nice, simple little melody, you know? Yep, absolutely. All right. All right. Well, um, my next song, it's, it's from my alternates list because, you know, we've, we've had the matches. Um, it is my second alternate. It was number two on my alternates list. Uh, it, it comes from the Nylon Curtain, and it is called Laura. Um, you know, Joe's first studio album after the, after the live Songs in the Attic um, you know, the Nylon Curtain should really be considered a double album. I, I've always felt that. I, the Phenomenal Side 1 features the thoughtful sociopolitical commentary of Allentown, and then the adrenaline rush, you know, the paranoid frenetic pressure, and then you had that striking balladry and moving tribute to Vietnam veterans, um, Good Night Saigon. But, but Side 2 shifts gears, and it features an experimental Beatles-inspired back half that, that seems to be a different album entirely. Um, what yeah. else is on side A? There's a fourth song. Uh, the fourth one is Laura. Oh, okay. Laura. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, you know, Billy Joe said that recording the Nylon Curtain was a catharsis for him um, because he was really, you know, he was emotionally distraught after the, the murder of John Lennon in 19. Well, I would argue that Laura is very Beatlesque. Uh, well, I'm, I'm oh, you're getting there. Okay. Because yeah, you're saying that's the one on yeah. the first side. Okay. Um, no. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, he did. He, he, he wrote. Um, you know, in, in many ways, um, you know, songs that were very Lennon-esque, if you will. Um, and subconsciously, he was singing like John Lennon, uh, you know. And in doing so, he, he crafted a remarkable tribute to Lennon and, and really one of Joel's very best albums. Uh, Nell and Curtin, you know, it, it did not sell. I mean, he sold a million copies of it, but that was it, it was, it paled in comparison to the sales of Stranger and, you know, uh, 52nd Street. Um, but for me, you know, the one song on the Nylon Curtain that has always stood out was Laura. It, it's just, it's different in so many ways uh, for a number of reasons, you know. Um, it's notable for the John Lennon-like vocals and the phrasing is similar to songs on the second side of the album, uh, Nylon Curtain. Laura, that, that's why for me, you know, I've always wanted to point this out and, you know, now I have a form to do that. Laura, I've always found it curious that it's placed on side one. Yeah. Really. Um, because I think had Joel swapped 
its place had he had he swapped she's right on time which opened side b with laura i i really think he would have created a flawless tribute to lennon on the back half she's right on time it's a fine song but it, it does not have that beatles lennon you know feel to right, it, that, right, that, that right. vibe yeah scandinavian um, skies that's a huge feel oh, that surprises surprises yeah. Yeah. even a room of our own i could i would argue right um, yeah so yeah had he just swapped laura and and um, she's right on time. I, I think, really, the back half side B would have been meticulously crafted. Um, but Laura, the song itself, it's an angry ballad uh, with with a late Beatles vibe to it. It is especially in its George Harrison like guitar solo. Really, the lyric itself. Uh, you're talking about a song. The lyric isn't particularly musical. I mean, it, it's not melodic <laughs> in the least. Um, but the melody. You know, underlying uh, on on the piano is is remarkable, and the song packs a real emotional punch. Joel, very famously, uh, even drops a very unexpected f bomb. I think it's the only one he the ever yeah ever uh, uses yeah, in any of his studio recordings. Yeah, he never uses profanity in his lyrics, and for that reason, the moment that that he uses it in Laura, I mean, it packs a wallop. I mean, it yeah. just it's so unexpected and so heavy. It's about a woman who seems to be able to manipulate the singer into doing anything by using guilt and by pushing his buttons. And Do you think this one also was about Elizabeth? Is he still not Elizabeth hung up on Elizabeth? I, I, lo- I looked further into okay. it. Okay, it's not Elizabeth. Um, let, let me give you a. Um, well, he says he should be immunized to all of her tricks, but he can't hang up the phone when she calls. Right, and there's a line there that talks about the umbilical cord. Is that giving you an idea? His mom? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, he was writing about his mother. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, he loved his mom as, as, as evidenced by the, the sweeter, more beautiful, you know, balladry that, that he had written for her. But later in life, she really apparently started to really, you know, be manipulative and, and, you know, she was always calling him for his needs. Um, he has a sister, Judy. So where Judy figured into all that, I, I don't know. But Billy Joe said it, it really got to a point where his mother's calls were incessant and he wanted to hang up, but he could not hang up on her. Um, you know, it, it, it's yeah. just Today really... I learned that Laura was about Billy Joel's yeah, mom. Exactly I did not about know his that. Mom, yeah. Um, he, which is something he later admitted Actually, he admitted it on Howard Stern. Well, she Stern. just passed away. She was like 94. It yeah. wasn't too long ago right. that she passed away. Yeah, no, she, she just, uh, it's very recent. Um, but even though it's written for his mother, I mean, it, the lyrics can be read universally. I mean, it makes sense that you would go to Elizabeth. I mean, 
Because the there's woman, so many other songs oh, yeah. about Elizabeth. But the woman was not uh, a yeah. kind woman. Um, but no, th- this song, it, it's not one of Billy's more popular tracks among the masses, but I, I love it. He does it, play it live because on the 12, uh, is it the 12 Gardens? Yeah, 12, yeah. Release, it's on there as well. Yeah, yeah he is starting to uh, increasingly play it live. It's it's just so unlike anything else that he ever recorded. And, you know, in my youth, I tell you what, when I made mixtapes and I was angry, especially you know, when, where dating was concerned. Um, yeah, Laura could make its way on a quite, quite a few of my mixtapes if I was in a really bad mood. Yeah, so. Nylon Curtain, I think, really was another moment where he opened up. I think Turnstiles is a key moment where he opens up creatively, and I think Nylon Curtain is the second big moment. Yeah. Because I remember when Allentown came out as a single and then Pressure, or I don't know which, which was first, Pressure might have been first, but I remember my dad, we talked about Glass Houses and how that was one of our favorite albums to listen to. And I remember him specifically saying like, oh, this is this is different. This is, In fact, some people, it might have been my mom, after listening to Glass Houses, said, oh, all the songs sound the same. And you can almost feel that way, that, that Glass Houses kind of has that vibe where they're all in the same vein. Yeah. Whereas Allentown and Pressure were really, really different than anything on Glass Houses. And of course, if you bought the album and dug a little bit deeper, you'd find out all the songs were very, very different. Oh, yeah. So it was a huge creative departure and a great next step for him as a songwriter. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Good take. All right. All right. We're back to ones I will probably match here. Uh, This one, I'm going back to almost the beginning. I don't have anything from Cold Spring Harbor. Uh, I do like listening to that once in a while because the songs are good songs. They're just basically Billy. They're, they're like demo tracks, really. They're demo tracks that just were never really developed. Yep. Um, I'm going with uh, Captain Jack. And we have a match. <laughs> Got to put Captain Jack on there. That's my number three. That's uh, from, from Piano Man 1973. And this song, you could argue, is the reason why Billy Joel is, is still Billy Joel. Uh, we mentioned that he was out in California trying to hide away from his uh, contract with Family Productions, hoping they would just go away. Um, you know, he still continued to not only play in some of the piano bars, which is where the song Piano Man came from, but, you know, he still continued to do different showcases and play live. And so he was in Philadelphia, and you can actually get this recording. It's actually been released um, in a kind of a studio. They don't do this anymore, but they would do these studio-type concerts where artists would come into a you know either a recording studio or, or a um, radio station and they would basically perform a concert for a small group of people but then they would put it on the air yes and so ww uh, wmmr in philadelphia which is it's kind of like our wms here in, in cleveland was kind of the aor classic rock rock station of the day so this is back in what 1972 73 and so he played Captain Jack among other songs and man the response in Philadelphia for this song I mean people kept calling in wanting to hear it again and it was huge in the Philadelphia area in fact it arguably was kind of the the tipping point where Columbia Records decided to give him a contract and that's when they had to you know finagle with his other record contract so chances are maybe if he didn't perform this in Philadelphia on, on the air and if people didn't take to Captain Jack like they did he never would have received that record contract and who knows he might be you know, might have become a teacher, history teacher, or something else. Yeah, um, I wouldn't have been a teacher. He never, he never got his diploma. No, but he always said he wanted to be. You <laughs> he, know, yeah, well, that's true. We didn't start the fire. Yeah, we didn't start. Yeah. This is another one. I told you I, I got songs in the attic from the library and and listened to it. And I think this is near the end of songs in the attic. But uh, you know, man, it's a heavy song. You know, heavier than most of Billy Joel's songs. Um, oh, yes. 
but there's there's something epic to it. I told you I kind of like those epic songs, but there's also something cathartic to it. I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what. I mean, I, I didn't know at first when I listened to it if it was metaphoric, you know, when you find your father in the swimming pool, is that literal or did you, did, you know, and, and now I realize it was, it was, it was pretty literal. Yeah. Um, Joel's pretty much looking at these white suburban kids in, on Long Island who've, you know, had their college paid for, don't really want to, you know, start their career. And so they're, you know, buying drugs, getting high and doing other things. And it's just kind of that idea that, you know, and I suppose we all go through it to some extent, um, that idea of we're just not ready to grow up. Mm-hmm. And I, do I want to take that next step and, and, and actually continue on with my life? Because that can be a very scary step. And so I see it kind of as an anti-drug song, but I really see it more than that. I, I see it more as kind of a 20-something stuck in that zone song, if that makes sense. Saturday night and you're still hanging around You're tired of living in your one-horse town like to find a little hole in the ground for a while mm-hmm. So you go to the village in your tie-dye jeans And you stare at the junkies and the closet queens It's like some pornographic magazine and you smile mm. Captain Jack will get you high at night Take you to your special island Captain Jack will get you by Captain Jack was based on a real person, right? It was a drug dealer who lived near Joel in Oyster Bay, uh, Long Island. Um, but Joel has also said that it, you know, it, it's meant to be more open to interpretation. Captain Jack can be anything that people use to escape their their little world to their special island. Before he plays the song in concert, which he does not do very often anymore, uh, it's very unlikely you'll hear Captain Jack perform live. But Joel has explained to the audience that the song is about spoiled, lazy, apathetic young college students who don't care about much other than partying and having sex. And, you know, their family is, has money and, you know, they paid for them to receive a good education and then they toss it away and don't care for anything except good old Captain Jack. It's definitely one of Joel's best. You know, it's just, it's definitely the centerpiece of Piano Man. Um, and I would argue it's, it's far, it's far superior to Piano Man. Piano Man, I mean, you know, it's definitely, you know, that... Oh, that's his mantra. That's his name. Yeah, but, but Piano, Piano Man and Captain Jack are the two songs that really stand out yeah, on that LP. they do. They do. Well, and I would argue there's a third, and it's on my alternate list. I don't think I'm going to pull it. Ballad of Billy the Kid. Yeah, Ballad. It's, it's on yeah, my alternate list, yeah. too. Yeah. Billy the Kid is on my alternate list. But yeah, Captain Jack, I mean, that was that was the song that really saved his career. Did you ever hear the story about uh, the Hillary Clinton fundraiser that she had Mm-mm. when she was running for Senate in New York? Oh, that's a great story. So the, her staffer put on New York State of Mind. You know, she's running for... 
you know, senator in New York. Right. Unfortunately, the campaign staffer got distracted or moved away from the stereo. So after New York State of Mind, it bled into eventually Captain Jack. Really? And so so uh, Giuliani, I believe, was running against her. And so he made this huge huge ordeal about how she was playing Captain Jack at this campaign fundraiser. He held a press conference. He listed all the different you know, items in the song and right. said that she was pro-drug and she was pro this or that. <laughs> and Hillary just said, no, my, my staffer just let the... I mean, she said, it's a, I'll give her credit. She said it was a great song. She defended the song, but she said, no, we did not intend to, to play that. We were simply trying to play New York State of Mind and the CD didn't get turned off in time. That's too funny. Yeah. No, I, I did not hear about that. Um... All right, yeah, that was my number three. So, uh, again, I'll have to pull another alternate here soon. Um, but uh, the next alternate I am actually going to to use, I'm going to go with Baby Grand. I knew that, that's that's one I knew. I knew until the night, and I knew Baby Grand would be on yeah. your list somewhere. Um, yeah, I, I got to go Baby Grand. I, it, you know, growing up, Joe always considered Ray Charles to be one of his idols, and. In interviews following the recording session for Baby Grand, Joel repeatedly told the press that Ray Charles was his hero growing up. Um, he humbly stated in, in one such interview that as big of a, a pianist or as big of a star that he would ever become, he could never be Ray Charles. Um, and his, you know, his, his adoration for Charles um, was never more apparent than when he named his daughter Alexa Ray. She was actually named for Ray Charles, or in, in honor of the famed pianist. And according to Joel, when, when Charles heard that Joel named his daughter, Alexa Ray, after him, Charles um, basically um, asked Billy Joel if the two of them could record a song together, which I, I never knew. I, I assumed that they met during the recording of We Are the World and, and just mutually agreed to, to sing a duet. But it was actually Ray Charles uh, called him and asked if the two could record when he found out that Joel named his daughter after him. Um, and, you know, when writing Baby Grand, Joel said he wanted to compose a song in the style of Charles' hit, Georgia On My Mind. And and he wrote the song over a single night. Like New York State of Mind, it was one of those rare songs that seemed to come all at once, almost as though he had heard it before. And, and when Charles showed up at the session, they met, uh, you know, and, and Joel was just in awe. He uh, to break the ice and better get to know one another, they each played piano for a while before recording the song. Um, originally, Joel was so nervous about recording with Charles that he was unsure how to how to record the song at all. And it was Phil Ramone. He, he told Joel to challenge Ray and um, and to do it the way Joel heard the song in his head. So Joel actually did his best Ray Charles impression, and and Charles understood, and the two sat side by side on their you know, individual pianos, and they sang together, professing their faith in, in this melancholy blues. Like Ebony and Ivory, come it, alive. It, kind of, <laughs> kind of. Um, no racial, uh, you know, meaning to the song, but yeah, that definitely you know, very similar image. Comes through. 
song is an ode to the piano itself. It, it's a love song that extols the joy and solace of playing piano, and it compares the piano to women, you know, whilst the musicians both reflect on their lives and careers. The song is also a tribute to Charles himself in, in the way it's composed, written, and performed. Um, while it doesn't, it doesn't have, you know, it does not feel as heartfelt or as authentic as New York State of Mind or, or Georgia on my mind, respectively. It, it is a class act, and it's a bluesy ballad, and I, I just never grow tired of it um you'd have to be heartless and with a genuine disdain for the the genre not to be moved by the two piano men as they lament no one's going to play this on the radio they said the melancholy blues are dead and gone but only songs like these played in minor keys keep those memories holding on it's definitely a highlight of the bridge yeah it's just in fact for me the bridge the entire album for me is defined by that one-two punch because you have uh big man on mulberry street immediately followed by uh or no it's the other way around. It you, was never you know, a single. Baby, baby Grand immediately followed by Big Man on Mulberry Street. It was never a single? Because um, I thought I remember there was a video. No, Baby Grand was released, but it, it did not So, no, the so they were 40. self, self uh, yeah. prophesizing on the no one will play this Exactly, yeah. No, it, it did not chart high at all. It did not crack the top 40. I think it I think it stalled somewhere in the, I'd, I'd have to look, but I think it stalled somewhere in the 60s. I thought I remember a video. Yeah. All right. So there you go. Excellent. Yeah, Good. good choice. All right, well, um, this is one that you may not have put on your list because you knew that I was going to. It is my favorite. You were correct. It is my favorite Billy Joel song of all time, and it is New York State of Mind. And that's why I did not include it on my list because I <laughs> knew it would be knew on yours. <laughs> it would be on there. Hey, otherwise, it would most definitely be on mine as well. So. And it's really tough between because scenes in New York State of Mind could go back and forth on any given day for me. But I think the one, I mean, where scenes from an Italian restaurant is the greatest Billy Joel song, New York State of Mind transcends Billy Joel. It's his most covered song of, of, I mean, we're talking the greatest of the greats, and I can go through a whole long list and I won't do it, but I mean, everyone from Sinatra, I'm pretty sure, and Tony Bennett, and just everybody, every standard singer. In fact, Joel himself said this is his favorite song because it became a standard. Um, you know, Joel likes to talk about how some of his songs, you know, they're like kids and they grow up. Like he talks about Shameless grow up to be a country star and some yeah. grow up to be bums, you know. Yep. And this one grew up to be a standard and, and standard in the sense that there are those songs that like the Great American Songbook over the last, you know, 80 to 100 years that have been covered a million times and everybody seems to know they're just part of our culture. And so New York State of Mind is, is a Billy Joel song, but it transcends that. It, it's, it become, it's part of America the American song. Does that make sense? Oh, I, mean, I don't think too many songs are even written for that anymore. It's kind of a thing of the past. Yeah. 
No, without question. Um, the only other song by Joel that I would say is probably up there, and I, you know, I, it's just the way you are. I mean, I think that that's, yeah. you know, the two share in, in that. And, and that's a, you know, it's a pretty simple pop song that it gets panned. I think unfairly, like it, it's not one of my favorites, just the way you are. But I mean, it's got a nice melody and it's it's very sentimental and it's fine. But this is just a whole other. In fact, it's funny that this is following following on the heels of, of Baby Grand because he said Ray Charles inspired this song right this is his attempt to write like a georgia on my mind but about new york and like we mentioned this one also by the way is from turnstiles again and uh, he coming back to new york this is his new york album he was actually on a greyhound bus on the hudson river line when he wrote the lyrics and as soon as he got home he wrote the piano part in about two hours so it's one of those songs and you hear artists talk about it where some songs you struggle and you, you work on them for maybe months until you finally complete them. This is one of those, you know, strokes of just pure inspiration. Yeah, it was written in very little time. It yeah. just kind of, he was more of a, you know, the muse basically spoke to him on this one. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood. Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood But I'm taking a Greyhound on the Hudson River line I'm in a New York state of mind Seen all the movie stars in their fancy cars and their limousines. Been high in the Rockies under the Everglades. But I know what I'm needing. I don't wanna waste more time. I'm in a New York state of mind. It was on Greatest Hits. Um, in fact, the vinyl version of Greatest Hits, because you had limited space on vinyl, did not include four songs that were on the CD version. Correct. So the CD version had Captain Jack, had Honesty, it had The Entertainer, and it also had uh, a fourth song that I'm not thinking, not, don't remember exactly what, but there was a fourth song that made it as well that did not make the LP version. But hmm. the LP version had New York State of Mind and it had The Stranger so it had a couple non-singles on it and this was one of those that even though I was probably 12 or 13 years at the time years old at the time and it should have probably been one I didn't like because it's more of a quote unquote adult song it's just it's so beautiful yeah yeah no it's it you know there have been many songs about New York I mean from Empire State of Mind to Mad Hatters you know by by Elton John, I mean, you've got, um, you know, it, there are just so many, but Billy Joel hits all the right notes. Yep. And, you know, New Yorkers, I mean, for them, this song is, it's sacred, and for, understandably and deservedly so. It's just, uh, you hear the track, and you you want to be in New York. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like a calling. Right. Um, and it, it just, might Was it adapted officially as the New York's official I, song? I think I it might have been. I think it was. Yeah. I, I really, I... I I, I know it was used on, yeah. on tour, tourist commercials right. and so on. No, I think that it has been named their their official song, and it's it's just, 
you know, it just, it has that bluesy, you know, vibe to you it. You can imagine it's Ray just, Charles singing it. Oh, without, yeah, definitely. I mean, he it's, probably it's, covered it somewhere. Yeah. Um, but no, it's just, it's, it, it's a marvel. And yeah, it, it would actually be my number two. Okay. Um, so uh, we're, we're the same yeah, number two. We're yeah, just having transposed. Yeah, it, yeah. Mine would be, you know, New York State of Mine number two, scenes number one, but I did not include it because I knew without question that was that was the, the only song that I 100% knew that you <laughs> Right, had. right. So for my next pick, and again, I'm just, just left with alternates now. This one I am confident will not be a match. Um, but I just, I had to include it. Um, it is without question the least known song from the stranger um it's you know it's an upbeat funky latin tinged disco like song it's really just a nice bit of fun and it's base it's get it right the first time yeah good song Uh, you know there's a stevie wonder vibe to it almost though it's not overt i um I, I, I just love it. The, the song opens with Liberty DeVito and Doug Stegmeyer laying down a funky drum and bass line. And then Richie Kanata comes in playing the flute, you know, which is not something you hear often on, on a Billy Joel song. Um, it, it's the closest that Billy ever came to doing a disco song. I mean, it's not disco, but it, it's pretty close. Um, and it works fantastically. It's, it's a breezy, carefree tune that stands in stark contrast to the heavier songs on the album. Um, the song is catchy, and, and the bossa nova type beat is irresistible. And in some ways, I would even say it lays the foundation for the Latin beat and rhythm of "Don't Ask Me Why" on Glass Houses, um, which is you know another extraordinary song that that seems oddly out of place on Glass Houses, honestly at times. Um, but next to such classics is "Just the Way You Are," Vienna, scenes from an Italian restaurant. Yeah, I mean, let's let's let for the listeners, for the casual listener, let's just go through like the stranger had. You mentioned so only the good die young scenes from Italian restaurant, uh, just the way you are um, moving out. Moving out song, the stranger self the, the title right. of, of the album. You had um, only the good die young. Only good die young. Uh, she's always a woman. She, I mean, just packed. Yeah, packed uh, with it. Yeah, without yeah, without question. I mean, it's it was. Uh, I think two thirds of the album was released, and right. they all charted very high. Um, so, and given you know the success of, of all of those songs, "Get It Right" the first time hardly received any airplay or recognition. But it's a guilty pleasure, really, um, for hardcore Billy Joel fans. Um, thematically, the song is about taking a chance on making a good first impression with someone. You have to seize the moment and make the most of your opportunity because, as Joel says, "You get it right the next time. That's not the same thing. Going to make the first time last." Um, you know, the, the reluctant pickup artist from Get It Right the first time who is trying to get up his nerve to meet a girl should really meet Diane from Sleeping With The Television mm-hmm. On, um, who is looking for someone solid and can't be bothered with those Just For The Night Boys. Uh, the two songs complement one another, I think, incredibly well. But, you know, Joe has said that this song was written as a relief, really, to, to the strength of the other songs, the, the heaviness of the other songs. Uh, he said that, uh, they thought they needed to have just just a little breath, which is really all all it is. It's just breathing, you know, in the context of of the album as a whole. But ironically, given the title, it it actually took many attempts to get the song right. Drummer Liberty DeVito has said that it was one of the hardest songs for the band to record, and it wasn't until the very end of the recording of that album that they actually got get it right the first time, right. So, funny as it may be. You know, they didn't get it right the first time. Um, but no, it's, it's just a fun, quirky number. And, you know, I, I, I just think it'd be a 
be a neat addition and a nice addition to the to the mixtape. I hope that looks don't deceive I ain't got time for true confessions Gotta make the move right now Got to meet that girl somehow Get it right the first time, that's the main thing Oh, I can't afford to let it pass You get it right the next time, that's not the same thing Oh, gonna make a Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I always liked the song, although it always felt like a, that and Everybody Has a Dream has always, they have always felt like B-sides to me. In some respects. Yeah. Not necessarily because of the quality, but in contrast to the giants that are on that album. Right. Yeah. Kind of no. like you mentioned, uh, all I want, all she wants to do is dance on turnstiles. Yeah. It just kind of feels B-side-ish because it's just not as good as the other tracks. Yeah. No, I would agree. I, I but the difference between the two, I, you know, get, uh, all you want to do is dance is the only imperfection on turnstiles. It really just, it, it kind of stops the flow of the album. Yeah, I can see um, that. But get it right the first time and everybody has a dream, even though I, you're right, I, I don't know that they, you know, reach the level uh, of the other songs, but Joe put them last on the album. To me, that makes a huge difference in terms no, that's of true. flow no, and structure. Yeah. Like in the bridge, he did that yeah, with, with some of the weaker songs. Yeah, with silence and getting closer. Right, yeah. right. Which right. one of those may or may not be on my least five. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought about it. <laughs> All right. Well, here's one I'm surprised that you did not put on your list. Hmm. It's from the Nylon Curtain. Okay. And we've already established how the Nylon Curtain is this artistic d- departure uh, for Joel. And uh, this, may, uh, this, again, is the same theme that we see from Joel on every single album. And as he grows up and as he matures... His view on life changes. I had to change my alternate picks again because I know exactly what you're talking about, and that was my next. Where's the orchestra? Where's the orchestra? Where's the orchestra? Yeah. Is the final song on the Nylon Curtain. Yep. My biggest dark horse on my initial list. It's the last one before I had to dig into my alternates. Uh, maybe Joel's most uh, metaphoric lyric oh. of, of all. Without okay, question. I'm not reading too much into it when he's talking about going to a show. And, you know, sitting in the balcony and where's the orchestra and why isn't life a musical? And yeah, he's not actually at a Broadway show. He's talking about life. Yeah. And, you know, I used to think it was a really, really sad song. But as I get older, I think it's just more reflective. And I think in a way it's his, I think maybe we all reach this point. I mean, younger listeners may not be able to relate to this, but, you know, when you're young, you kind of have an idea of where you think your life should go or you where you want your life to go. And then kind of like the Talking head song, you know, you wake up and it's like, how did I get here? Yeah. How did I get this wife in this house? Like, whoa, whoa, right. you know? And some people are never satisfied with anything and they're always looking for that next horizon. And I think this is Joel saying, you know what? Yeah, this isn't the life that you expected, 
but it can be a pretty darn good life. And you ha- you have a horizon in front of you now that's pretty good. I mean, there's a sunset right there that you can enjoy. And instead of just constantly searching for the next best thing or where you want to be, take time to, to really, yeah, maybe your life isn't a musical. Maybe it is a play, but plays are good. Yeah. No, you nailed it. <laughs> you absolutely nailed it. I mean, I, the allegory, I think most people do consider it to be a depressing um, song, but you know, it, it really, it's, it's a lovely and thoughtful rumination about life. You know, the singer, the singer accepts that he was wrong about whether the show would have a song and, and it, but, but he understands and he appreciates the nuances of the show, right? The, the innuendo and the irony of life. So maybe life is lonely and in the end we all really do die alone among empty chairs and there is no orchestra even though we thought there would be one. But the irony is that life does have a song, namely this one. And, and, you know, the many other songs that about life that Joel has penned, it's, it's just, I don't know, it, it, the older I get, I mean, I, I loved the song, you know, when we oh, obsessed sure. over right, Billy right, Joel, right. you know, in our Back late, when we said, teens. oh, that's never going to happen to our and, life, yeah, we're exactly. never going to feel that way but, about life. you know, and I, I think at that time I did, I looked at it as, you know, midlife crisis and, you know, depression and giving up. But the reality is, as I've gotten older, you know, the song has taken a different yeah, meaning well, for me. There's a word that, you know, depending on how you approach this word, it has a different connotation. It's contentment. Yes. And a lot of people feel that's a dirty word. And I'm not saying that you should just always be satisfied with where you are in life because you should always be trying to grow, learning new things, learning new skills, challenging yourself. That should always be a part of your life. But I think you can have that as part of your life, but also being content where you are in life. Right yep. now, I understand there are circumstances beyond people's control and things happen to people and we get different stages of life that are, can be tragic and, and, and so forth. And it kind of ebbs and flows. But, you know, I, I've gotten to that point in my life where I feel like, you know, I've, you know, I've, I have two great kids and I have a great marriage. Uh, I have a job that I enjoy. Um, I'm just I'm, I'm financially secure. And of course, a lot of those things can change. But at this point, I feel content. Musically, the song was recorded by Joel without his regular band, right? And instead, he has a chamber orchestra led by a conductor behind him with a cello, clarinet, accordion, saxophone, and, and Joel on the piano. The recording was also done to separate the stereo playback so that Joel's voice is separate from the orchestra, you know, different channels. 
which which is really appropriate given the title and the theme of the song. And then at the end, of course, the opening string to Allentown comes in again, tying the whole album together. But, you know, for serious Billy Joel fans, Where's the Orchestra represents the best of Billy Joel. It, it just does. I mean, the, the music and the lyrics to complement each other and, and take the listener to another place and inside oneself, it really is an appropriate end to Joel's most ambitious album. And, you know, one expert on Billy Joel by the name of Christy Brinkley um, has actually said that Where's the Orchestra is her favorite Billy Joel song. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, it's, yeah, it's... It, Good choice. I, and, I, it was my next alternate pick, so now I need to come up with a new one. And what's great about the end of the song, there are a few uh, instrumental, uh, like a reprise of Allentown. Yep, yep. So at the very end, you have that, that little bit of a melody that calls back to the first song on the LP, which is Allentown. So it kind of ties everything together. Yep. And makes it that concept album, which is nice. Agreed. All right, okay. the next one. Well, I, well, it was Where's the Orchestra? <laughs> so now uh, we move to another song, again, from the Nylon Curtain. I didn't think I'd get to this one, but it is my next pick. That is Goodnight Saigon. Um, you know, Goodnight Saigon is an anomaly, really. Another epic song. Yeah, Joel, Joel, Joel typically stays away from political songs. He has a total of three. Okay, he has Allentown, Goodnight Alan's, Saigon, and, and We Didn't Start the Fire? Down Easter, Alexa. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're, not, you're not counting We Didn't Start the Fire? No, no. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll talk we, we Didn't Start the Fire here in a little bit. Um, <laughs> Do we it, have to? <laughs> it, it has classroom value, but right. beyond yeah. that. Um, now, I, really, the, the three you know political songs, two of them we've already used in previous episodes, and then Good Night's Egg On. Um, you know, Joel typically stays away from political songs. He, he, he never served in the military. Um, but he composed Saigon after he was asked to write a song by a veterans group. They actually came to him and asked him to write a song. And, you know, since Joe had no firsthand experience with combat and really no interest in espousing his views on the topic, he was reticent. I mean, he, he finally conceded, uh, in part as a tribute to his own high school friends who served during the war and some of whom never, never returned home. We met as on Paris Joe often, you know, he cites the Red Badge of Courage as his inspiration for the song uh, because author Stephen Crane, of course, did not serve, but, you know, based the Civil War story on accounts of those who fought in it. And Joe took a similar approach. He, he wrote the lyrics only after interviewing countless Vietnam vets to learn more about their experiences. And, and the lyrics are entirely based on his, you know, conversations with them. Um, in his 2014 appearance on a Howard Stern 
show, uh, Howard Stern hosted Town Hall. Joe explained, I wanted to do that for my friends who did go to Nam. A lot of them came back from being in country and really had a hard time getting over it. And still to this day, I think a lot of them are having a hard time. They were never really welcomed back. And whether you agreed with the war or not, these guys really took it on the chin. They went over there and they served and they never really got their due. It was all about them depending on each other. And when they were over there, they weren't thinking about mom, apple pie, and the flag. They were doing it for each other to try and help and save each other and protect each other. And he said that really hit me. In concert, I don't know that he performs it live these days, but but it used to be a staple for right. his live concerts. And he would always bring Vietnam veterans on stage to sing the chorus right. when he performed it. I mean, when he was going to the, to the next venue, he would call veterans groups in that city and you know arrange for veterans to come and be on stage with him and sing. Um, it, he always said it was like bringing them home and giving them giving them a little bit of a welcome back. Um, Phil Ramone, who produced the song, said that uh, they never thought it would be a hit, but they knew it meant a lot to Billy Joel and, and to the people that were lost in Vietnam. And then later, you know, when he does do it once in a while on a show, the place just comes apart. I, I, I think that happens a lot when, you know, that, that you don't think or that, that an artist doesn't think that something will be as powerful as it turns out. And, you know, then it does come out, you know, being... Just, yeah, he's taking a risk because he didn't serve for right. people to say he doesn't know, but he also didn't work in a steel town, yes. right? I mean, he's not he like he likes to sail, but he's not making his living on a on a boat. So, like Stephen Crane's a great example because it is at least it was at the time when we were in high school. I don't know if that's changed. Seen as one of the most realistic Civil War books ever ever written, and of course Stephen Crane did not serve. So, yeah, I mean that's what being an artist is: is being able to tell other people's stories. You know, we kind of went through a, a phase in the 80s where there were a lot of songs and movies about Vietnam. Yes. Uh, of course, you had Platoon, and, and which was, was huge. And then musically, you had 19 and, and uh, Walking the Thin Line, and of course, Springsteen uh, with Born in the USA. So, yeah, this is one of the, the many kind of uh, Vietnam homages during the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, Joel, one of the things critics pan him for is that he he often uses sound effects in his songs. And of course, this begins with the the chirping crickets, and then the the rotors. It's a very long fade in. Yeah, very, and you know, and a very long fade out because you have the helicopter, you know, approaching and then leaving. Um, but for me, it, you know, when I hear that the rotors of of you know the the chopper coming in, it just it gives me chills still. I mean, the song is just incredibly powerful. So yeah, it's it's one that was actually on the vinyl release of Greatest Hits. Which surprises me. Well, I guess scenes is kind of long, and so is Captain Jack. Right. But it actually made it over honesty. I can see it making it over the entertainer. Yes. But it made it over honesty, which surprises yeah, me. Yeah, I was bit. always I was always amazed that honesty didn't make the greatest test. Honesty was, you know, it, for me personally, it was you know, it meant a lot because um, this is in my top ten. My, the, my girlfriend, the, who I was dating at the time, that was a song that meant a lot to us. And yeah, honesty to, to this day is. Arguably my favorite ballad. Of course, we're doing only non-singles today. If nothing else, for that little gimmick when he says "depend upon" and it runs into honesty. Honesty, yeah, yeah. Love you know, I love thing. it. Yes. All right, All your right, turn. Good tune. Okay, so I'm I'm to my alternates now, and I am going to choose "The Stranger" from "The Stranger." Uh huh. No, I had it as an alternate, but it, I I don't I wasn't planning on getting there. It was another non-single that made the vinyl version of greatest hits, and so I I knew that um, very early on in my my Billy Joel fandom. 
You know, it's funny. I don't know. Did your parents listen to WHBC? All the time. Okay, yeah. so you know I'm going to talk about. It's in my notes. Yes. <laughs> we always had a radio in our kitchen that was just on all the time. I still. It just constantly ran. Yep. And I believe it was six o'clock every evening. Yeah, every night. Yeah. They would play this little whistle tune before going into the news. And I just thought it was some canned thing that the radio station played. I grew up with it. Probably I, heard it every night of my life. I did too. And so when I got a copy of the Greatest Hits and I played it for the first time and here comes the whistle. Yeah. The whistle intro from from WHBC. Oh my gosh, it's a Billy Joel song. Yeah, it blew my mind when I, I had made the discovery. No clue that was a Billy Joel song. They just took that intro and they used it. Yeah, this song, I mean, some people, and it'd be interesting to see what you think about it. I always assumed it was just kind of about mental illness and about a side of us that we don't want other people to see, whether it be with, you know, anger issues, compulsion issues, you know, obsessions and so on. But I guess it could also be a song about being true to yourself, you know, and not being somebody else for everybody else type of thing. It's a little of both. Yeah, you know, in many ways, it's the photo negative to themes in the Beatles' Eleanor Rigby or, you know, who keeps her face in the jar by the door, uh, who is it for? Or even Leon Russell's The Masquerade, in which we're lost in the masquerade and not revealing our true selves. Um, Yeah, the the song, you know, begins with that wistful piano prelude and Joel whistling. Joel has said that he pictured a solitary man walking down an empty street in the night in a trench coat, coat collar turned up and disappearing into the fog, evincing a mood of pessimism and fatalism and menace as though scoring a film noir. And he literally has said that's what he envisioned for this, this, you know, prelude to the song. And then with with the sting of an electric guitar, you know, Joe erupts, or rather interrupts the, the, the film strip with, with immediacy and the band launches into a jarring rocker. It's one of his rockers that I think he pulls off, unlike yeah. some of the times I mentioned that I think he may have yeah, failed a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Structurally, it's very similar to Stiletto from his follow-up album, you know, 52nd Street. Um, but yeah, he, he originally envisioned that introductory melody would be played by a saxophone or another instrument, and he only whistled uh, the melody as filler in the studio. 
And it was producer Phil Ramone who wisely encouraged him to just keep the whistling as he felt it was more intimate. The song was in part inspired by Joel's attempted suicide at age 21. Um, Is that when he drank the furniture cleaner? Yeah, yeah he, he tried to end his life by drinking furniture polish uh, and didn't work. All he did was burp bubbles from, from <laughs> what I've read. Uh, but, but he did check himself into a facility. He did, yeah, right. because then, um, yeah, he checked himself in, into a mental facility and you know, there he, he finally came to the conclusion that, you know, all of his problems were self-made. You know, we haven't talked a whole lot about Joel's youth. I mean, he he was a belligerent hood, really, in his youth. I mean, he his father, um, you know, left, and, and his mom, Rosalind, was a single mom raising two children in New York in the 60s, which, you know, was not a time to be, you know, a single woman and divorced. Um, you know, there was a stigma attached to that. Um, for Billy, the alienation he felt living in this oppressive suburban development erupted into rebellion. I mean, he, he had sprees of gang crime, he had general antisocial hell raising and, and, and boxing as a welterweight. Um, he actually fought a total of 22 fights as a teenager. And during one of the fights, you know, he, he had his nose broken, um, which you can still see to this day. You know, it, he, um, yeah, for the early years of his adolescence, he divided his time between studying piano and fighting. And so when the spirit of the British invasion blew across the country in the early 60s, Joel became convinced that he too could achieve coolness by performing in a band. And then suddenly the pansy piano lessons his father and mother made him take as a youngster seemed pardonable, right? But, you know, he, he had a rough childhood. And, you know, he was in a number of bands that kept flopping, um, starting with... Uh, the Echoes, and then The Lost Souls, and then The Hassles, and then... Although yeah. The Hassles put out an album. Well, the Hass- they put out two, actually. Two, that's they, right. they had the self-titled album, and then they also had Howl Like a Wolf. Both flopped, though. And then he and drummer John Small... Attila. Uh, formed, oh, man. formed Attila. We'll which talk was, about a failed experiment. Yeah, exactly. Um, they tried to create you know, a psychedelic heavy, album with psychedelic just heavy metal organ or... and drums. That, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the only time <laughs> It didn't work. And then Joel started having an affair with John Small's wife, Elizabeth. That's how she enters the picture. And upon discovery, Attila broke up. And then you know, Joel, uh, when, when all that was happening, Elizabeth disappeared. So yeah. Joel was left by himself, you know, and he had no high school diploma because he was he never graduated for excessive absenteeism, and and you know he he did he tried to take his own life and then he checked himself into the mental institute and uh, you know he came out they they felt that you know he had you know pretty much self cured himself he, he came out Elizabeth returned they married um, and then he signed away his rights for the next fifteen years to a you know, recording label that took horrible advantage of him he right. he does not own or, or did not own the publishing rights to his songs until right. and that's a common it. thing that's yeah. a common thing because you get a lot of money up front yeah and a lot of artists need that money up front exactly and so they end up signing yeah. things right. away stormfront was the first album that he really made money on uh, most of his fortune came from touring you know right. and um you know he's had now three divorces he um he he's he's had his share of you know struggles and hardships and, and he's just overcome again and again um well and then he well he took his experiences with the attempted suicide then of course created second wind you're yeah, only human only human as an effort to hopefully garner some wisdom to the right. to the youth yeah and um you know when, when i was compiling my list I, I made it very purposefully i made the decision that all non-singles had to come from his actual studio albums so i didn't pick anything that was a 
you know, a B-side on a 45 only. I didn't pick anything that was a cover. I didn't pick anything that was released on the Greatest Hits albums. Um, but yeah, Second Wind was, you know, that was based a single. on that. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was a single. Yeah. So it was... Um, uh, well, The Night Is Still Young was released, but it didn't chart high. Didn't chart, but yeah. it was... Um, and that one, to me, I, I loved it when it came out. And now, actually both of them, <clears throat> they're so... They're, they're slightly overproduced. And, the, you know, to me, they... I don't know. You're only human. I, I always felt sounded like it could be a track on an innocent man in many ways. But well, it also it feels bridgy to me though too. Like it was a, it was yeah. a, it was a kind of a transition. Yeah, it really was. Um, and for those of you that don't know, when you a lot of times a record label when you release a Grace Hits album, they want you to put a couple of new tracks on so yeah. fans who have all the albums will buy that yeah. album too. And those were two songs that were at the end of Greatest yeah. Hits. Well, and for his Greatest Hits, uh, Volume 3, the three songs he records are all covers. Because he ran out of songs yeah. to put I mean, on you there. have Hey Girl, you have... Um, you the, know, uh, the one I love is Light as the Breeze. Light as the Breeze. Only oh, does the Dylan cover yeah, to yeah, uh, yeah, Make You Feel My Love. Yeah, to Make You Feel My Love is the Dylan cover, but Light as the Breeze, when he covers uh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah, um, no, it's they're good. They're good yeah, covers. they are. In fact, Leonard Cohen said that Joel's version of the song is the definitive version, but... Um, was that after that was the release though before River of Dreams or no is it after River? it was after was yeah, it okay because yeah, River of Dreams is so he had, the, yeah. yeah like we say he was he was not very prolific in fact most of his B, he had a couple B-sides they were very weak like House of Blue Light House of Blue Light Elvis Presley Boulevard oh, yeah. um, but most of the time it was either a cover version like he'll like I'll Cry Instead the Beatles right. um, or it was just another song on, like Easy Money was yeah. was a B-side so yeah, it's um. So I yeah, I only went with the studio albums. Yeah, but, as, as did I. But uh, no, the stranger. I mean, it's you know, it's. I think that he, it's it's very good. I mean, it, it's really a song like you said. It's one of the few rockers that he really pulls off. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, oftentimes for Joel, swapping the piano for the electric guitar is a mistake, because he just he's not a power player on the yeah, instrument. He's out of his lane a little bit. Yeah, and and that's that was really the problem with Stormfront and River of Dreams. Right. Um, Stormfront was the first album. He he basically stopped working with Phil Ramone. He produced it with Mick Jones from yeah, Foreigner. From Foreigner. Yeah. And uh, Mick Jones, I literally just changed the sound yeah. of Billy Joel because uh, he really turned him, tried to turn Joel into a stadium rocker. Right. And that, and that was like the third, <clears throat> like third departure of his career. <clears throat> Yeah, which it worked at some places like Dinosaur Alexa. I would argue Shameless is a good song. Right, Shame, actually, Shameless is one of my alternate. I'm not going to get mine to as it. well. Right, but um, yeah, I really, but you know, Stormfront. The the only songs that really work are the ones where Joel plays with uh, very deliberately with with what he's accustomed to. Well, like and so it goes. And but so that's a goes. holdover from the Innocent Man. Innocent Man, and it was actually Sessions. you know that one was actually written. Most people think an Innocent Man. All the songs were written for Christy Brinkley. Right. About half of them were. The other half were actually written for El McPherson. Yeah. Because he had dated El McPherson right, before right. he dated and married Christy Brinkley. McPherson actually introduced so him. So for to all Christy. the tragedy that Joel went through, he got there was a period of his life where he was dating supermodels yeah, in the Caribbean. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, no. And so it goes. Um, I would argue I go to extremes. While I don't particularly love that song, I mean, it was it's it's classic Billy Joel pop, you know. And then we didn't. Let's talk about we didn't start the fire. Real fast, because I know you hate this song. I do. Um, you know, it's to me. It's it's Billy Joel trying to rap. Yeah, what it is. yeah. And it, you know, it's narcissistic. It's it's just you know, there's it there's that myopic you know tri-state area you know with the hypodermics on the shore and Bernagets and but but to me what I, I've always found it impressive though that he actually managed to take headlines and names and dates and craft them to actually 
you know, te- I mean, teach it, it, the, it, it, the 40 years of his life. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not a great song. And, right. and Billy Joel has even said now he is sick of performing it. Like, yeah. And for an apologetic Billy Joel fan, you know, it, it, it really puts you into a quandary yeah. because the song is not good. It's his only third. I mean, he only had three number ones yeah, on Billboard, exactly. right? Uh, still yeah. rock and roll to me. Tell her about it. And we didn't start and the fire. And we didn't start the fire. Yeah, the song is not good, but it is hugely popular. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those songs that he is now stuck yeah. performing, right. and frankly, he's just tired of it. Um, I have no problem with the verses themselves. I actually find it kind of, I've always found it interesting. It does have classroom value. To me, what really kind of breaks the song, what what, what I think is so disappointing, is that the, the chorus just mediocre at best if he had done anything with that chorus to actually truly bridge you know the the segments and then the history that he that he's you know talking about the song may have been more profound more yeah. more you know but it's just well here's where it's a good classroom exercise i, I would do a creative writing assignment where i'd ha- basically i'd have my students write two or three additional verses to take us up to whatever year we were in that would, yeah yeah. And that was nice for rhyme scheme, and they exactly. had to do a little research. Yeah, well, you're right because I mean he is. I, I don't think you know he misses a beat. You know, from '49 when he was born through '69. Right. But then he hits the '70s and '80s, and together they get one verse, and he just glosses Rock and roll over. Or Polo Wars. Yeah, glosses over two decades. You know, with immediacy. But um, no, it it just really you know. Swapping for the electric guitar is just not in Joel's best interest because he's not a guitar player. I, I like Matter of Trust. Matter like of Trust. Stranger. Yes. Uh, there are the, a couple there. Yeah, those are anomalies. Um, but but really, I mean, even... Now, I give him credit on River of Dreams. The, the album is hit or miss. But at least it's experimental because, you know, Great Wall of China and Blonde Over Blue. I mean, he to me, it reminds me very much of Nylon Curtain because he's taking... He's, he's trying to make another departure. Yeah, yeah he's taking I, chances. I liked it better when it came out, and I might have been hopeful because I wanted to really like it. You yeah. know, um, someone said I just read recently that it was his kind of his attempt at alternative music. Really? Because you know, grunge was big, and he's done this his entire life. Like, but that's still rock and roll. And he talks about that. Like, yeah. he yeah. he's not going to be a punk artist, but he's you know, Glass Houses has shades of of like we said, new wave and and, sure. and maybe punk music. And so it was his, he was never going to be a grunge artist, but alternative, but grunge opened the door for other alternative artists of the eighties to become popular. And that yeah. is, it was his attempt at an alternative sound hmm. that didn't necessarily work. Which I guess makes sense. But the problem is, and I hate this term, we've talked about it before, this whole idea of dad rock. I mean, it is river dreams. Yeah. It's experimental. And some of it works, at least in an unorthodox, unconventional way. But the album just it screams dead rock and especially a song that i loved on that album when it was first released was shades of gray yeah yeah yeah. i actually saw it as the compliment to angry young man yes it was but you know as i've been listening to it uh because i've been listening as i said to all of his albums in the last week as i prepped for the show shades of gray now it screams of dad rock yeah it just really i'm not taking anything away i mean you know it 2,000 Years isn't a bad song. 2,000 Years, I think, is phenomenal. It's it's yeah. him at the piano. It's very, you know, it, it really is a callback to his early days. In fact, 2,000 Years is a sweeping epic, not just of the 40 years of his life, but of 2,000 years. Right. It, it, it's kind of a grandiose, you know, a grander version of We Didn't Start the Fire, only it's 
good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, it, you know, River of Dreams did not make my list, and and I feel Stormfront like- did not make my list. I, I cut all my list and all my alternates off at the bridge. Um, but you know, those last two albums, they're not bad. I mean, nothing by Billy Joel is. But bad. don't you feel like if Phil Ramone produced those two records, they would have been much they better. Been much better. Yes. Because Ramon, like we said, came on on The Stranger, and his last album was, was The Bridge, I believe. Yep. Yeah, I just wish that he yeah. had stayed on for those last no, two. I agree. I, I he also changed his band. Yeah, the only one that he kept with him was Liberty DeVito on drums. Like and, like Springsteen, the same thing. Yeah, and, and I think it was Dave Crutchemauer is the one that, that talked him into doing that. Yeah, yeah, because he kept Liberty on drums, and he kept um, Mark Rivera on sax. The yeah. rest of the band, he... he fired and then just well he had gone. to add crystal because he couldn't hit the high notes anymore yeah, well yeah that's very <laughs> who should, also toured with springsteen yes it's kind of a weird uh, uh, yeah, incestuous, incestuous thing yeah. <laughs> right well and, and the two of them are actually very good friends springsteen and joel become best buds later in life i guess springsteen goes boating with joel frequently yeah so um okay so for my last pick i am <clears throat> i have a few that i can pick from but I think I'm going to give love to an album I hate. Okay. Um, the follow up to Piano Man, <laughs> Street Life Serenade. I'm sorry. It is, I mean, we just got done bashing Stormfront and River of Dreams. But Street Life Serenade, Serenade to me will always be Joel's worst album. Um, you know, it's, it's largely forgotten. And other than the entertainer, Joel seldom plays any songs from the album, despite, you know, his, his affinity for his non singles and deep cuts. Uh, of the ten cuts, there are two piano instrumentals, you know, that are pure filler. Um, the melodies of the album, you know, they they just aren't nearly as catchy as those on piano. No, souvenir though, that's an, it's really short. Is that the one you're going to pick? Oh, pick. I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you were going <laughs> to pick Street Life. You I, are all no. I thought you were picking Street I am Life. Not picking Street Life. No. Okay. Um, yeah. It, see, you always do this. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, but no, I, I'm glad you picked it. Yeah, really, you know, there are only three songs, in my opinion, on Street Life Serenade that are really good. Now, I love Great Suburban Showdown, which you, you mm-hmm. had on your right. list, list um, you know, uh, on a previous episode. Um, I love that. Um, but I wouldn't even say that's one of the three great songs. I, for me... The three that that really kind of save the well, that doesn't save the album because it's the minority of songs. But I love Weekend Song. I mean, it is just a hook laden, little feet like slippery piano funk, and I it reminds me in some ways of Ain't No Crime, mm-hmm. Piano Man. Right. Uh, to me, that's just a fun song, and I I can really you know I I dig that one. Um, and then you have the minor top forty hit, The Entertainer. You know, it's a cynical but playful commentary on Joel's experiences in the music industry. Um, you know, it it. That one he still plays, and for good reason. And then there's Souvenir. Um, Which he used to always end his shows with to, Souvenir. Yeah, right? through, through the 70s, he always ended the shows with it. Uh, it is the shortest song he ever recorded. Um, it's just two actually, it's two minutes, one second. So, but I'm going to say here it's, you know, two minutes in length, which is unfortunate, really, because had he extended the song in a more meaningful way, it would no doubt be regarded as one of his very best songs. It, 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 it's got a little bit of where's the orchestra in it, it, it does. Or, or the other oh, way around absolutely yeah I mean, critics often dismiss the song because of its length arguing that it, it doesn't feel like a fully recognized song um, but I, I, I disagree you know as we've noted several times in our podcast I'm a lyrics first guy and when it when it comes to rock and pop music I mean again I love you know jazz and blues but um, and, and there the music 
takes precedence. But, you know, for pop and for rock, rock and roll, I, I am lyrics first. And as such, Souvenir is just a treat, you know. And it's the final song with lyrics on Street Life Serenade. And it, it serves as a sort of coda to the album. You know, it's a nice, wistful tune about the, the tiny details in life that we file away like another year of our lives filed away. And like a fine poem, it says many things in a concise, impactful, and lyrical manner using sentimental images, you know, a program of the play, a picture postcard, your mementos, uh, you know, but this is not a sentimental song. The underlying theme is that such things will all turn to dust and slowly fade away, just like another year passing. The length of the song is therefore fitting, really, you know, because like the days, weeks, and years of our lives, the song just ends too quickly. And like our best memories, it fades before we're ready for it to end. Picture postcard, a folded stub, a program of the play, file away the photographs of your holly. Musically, Souvenir, is, it's simple, it's elegant with a classical melody. Uh, Billy once explained in a Q&A session that you know, the opening notes of the song are almost the same as those in Chopin's Raindrop Prelude, um, Opus 28, number 19 in D-flat major for the classical fans out there. But, you know, you know he, he just, he crafted a song that uh, it, it, it's beautiful despite, you know, being so short. And... I, it was not one of the alternates I was going to go with. I was actually leaning very heavy toward Ballad of Billy the Kid or Everybody Loves You Now. But Souvenir, it's a song that I don't think which version? Audience, which version of Everybody Loves You Now? Oh, I was going to have to go Songs in the Attic. Which would have made a tough transition. It would have, which is why I didn't go with it. You Because know? I would have, well, I can't pick She's Got Away because that's one, that's one of my favorites too. Oh, she's, yeah, that was, that yeah. was a single. Uh, well, and those are the two best songs in Cold Spring Harbor. She's right. Got Away and Everybody Loves You Now. Yeah, Cold Spring Harbor, folks, I, we, we mentioned it, but if you're unfamiliar with it, his debut album, uh, it has a really weird history to it. I mean, a mastering error caused the tapes to be sped up uh, making Joel's voice higher than normal. You know, he, he he has said that he thought it made him sound like a chipmunk, and he's right. Um, it wasn't until 1983 that the album was reissued uh, via Joel's then-label Columbia, and the mistake was corrected, but the original producer, Artie Rip, who also oversaw the 1983 reissue, he goes beyond simply fixing the mastering error and gives the album a complete makeover, significantly truncating the length of most tracks, even cutting over three minutes out of You Can Make Me Free. Uh, even worse, on several cuts, he, he's either taken much of the original instrumentation out of the mix entirely, for instance, Tomorrow's Today, um, you know, or, or he brought in studio pros to cut all new backing tracks, which he did for Everybody Loves You Now and Turn Around. So the end result of all that is that neither version of Cold Spring Harbor you know, is, is an accurate reflection of what Joel intended for the album to sound like. Why no one has actually just went back to the original master tapes and slowed it down and reissued it, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, which is why I, I, I love Everybody well, Loves I, You I Now. I bet you if we checked YouTube, 
someone's probably done that. Uh, yeah. Someone probably had found the original LP. You think? And, 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 just, and took it through a digital uh, workstation yeah. and I bet they fixed have. it. I, you, I bet you're right. But no, I just, you know, I, I, that's why I didn't go Everybody Loves You Now. Because, you know, Cold Spring Harbor still, it, it's just cringeworthy. I hate listening to it despite loving the songs on it. Um, you know, because Joel has never sounded more vulnerable than he does. I mean, it, it is a young Billy no, Joel. It is. Um, but at the same time, Songs in the Attic would have, you know, our, our Spotify playlist being what it is. So, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to go Souvenir. And what, what else did you have? What were the other songs um, on your alternate list? The rest of my the alternates I did not get to. I did not get to Ballad of Billy the Kid. I did not get to, um, oh, what else did I have here? Um, I did not get to Stiletto, and I did not get to Shameless. Okay, those, well, those were the three I did not use. That's interesting because I have one. I have one to to choose, and we have several matches there. The <laughs> ones I have remaining on my alternates list are Stiletto. Okay. Um, All for Lena. Okay. Big Man on Mulberry Street, which of course you've already chosen. Right. Leningrad. I actually, I think that's a highlight of Stormfront. It, it is, and it, it's, it's not. It, you know, it's it's. I love the song, and I. I to, you know, it's based on true life events. It's you know he met, he met him on his you know touring Soviet Union. Um, it is a beautiful song. Well, it's just a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a nice Cold War resolution of is, empathy. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, it's not commercially successful. He tried to release it and it went nowhere because right. it, I mean it just doesn't have commercial appeal. But it is a beautiful song. <laughs> It'll still surprise you. Uh, a song from River of Dreams, famous last words. Ah. Uh-huh. No, Which I, mean, I think is a strong. Sense. It's a great song. Yeah, it's, no. it's probably I think one of the strongest. It's, it's a it's a great song. If we if we ever do an end of summer, yeah, mixtape. Which I, I, mean, I think it's, it's a metaphor, but it can also be seen literally as oh, end yeah. of summer. I, but that, that was, I think it's another song about contentment. It is. I, well, that was the last song the man recorded. It, it's yeah. another where's the orchestra, but from another uh, yes. another age. It's, exactly, it's the third age, uh, and uh, half a mile away. Aha. Uh-huh. Which. Was, one of our songs. Kind of our songs because, you know, it was about just a bunch of guys hanging out in the street because there's nothing else to do. I thought about it, but that would have put every, that would have put every song except 52nd Street right. on my list. list. So and I, we I, lived about a half a mile away. We did. So it yes. kind of worked, you know? <laughs> yes, we did. So that was, uh, that was a fun one. We did not hide the bottle when the cops went by, though, folks. We were, <laughs> we were good kids. And if you believe that, I can sell you a bridge. So <laughs> I also have Ballad of Billy the Kid and Shameless. Uh-huh. And of course, Shameless became a big hit by Garth Brooks. Right. The great story there where Garth Brooks was uh, part of the CD of the month club but he was on the road for six months and when he got home he had all these CDs that you know he had to yep. pay for and one of them was Stormfront and he gave it a listen and it kind of ignited his love for Billy Joel again because he yes. had known him earlier and he decided he, he actually called Billy Joel's management company and asked if they were going to release Shameless and when he found out they weren't he made a country version of it yeah. which went to number one on the country charts yeah now I, you know I, I'm not a huge country fan but I do like Garth and I do like his version but Billy is, you know, Billy Joel's version of Shameless. I mean, it's so blues infused. It was actually written as a tribute to Hendrix. Yeah, which is unusual. I, you can kind of hear it when you listen to it, but it yeah. seemed weird when I read that. Yeah, but it, it, you know, it. I don't know. I go back and forth. The guitar because, solo. Yeah, I, I love how brooding and how raw his vocals are, and it's really one of the very few songs that were were. Most of the songs he wrote for Christy Brinkley, most of them. Were not very flattering songs. I mean, I think he tried, <laughs> but but Shameless was the one song that really. I mean, it was it was when a man loves a woman, you right. know, for for the for our generation. I mean, it was Percy Sledge, and you know the song is just a man, you know, showing his, you know, un, un 
unwavering devotion to, to the woman that he loves. I, Shameless is just a beautiful song. I guess one thing that bothers me about River Dreams maybe is because a lot of the songs are about Christy and they're dead rocker you mentioned like Landover Blue and yeah. and she painted the cover of the album and then it was kind of all a sham because that's when that's when they, their marriage broke up yeah so it kind of had this feeling of hey I'm content and our marriage is perfect and we're going to go off into the sunset and it fell apart right after that album yeah. came out well I don't you know I I think the the divorce came in many ways as a a surprise to Joel. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah, bothered because yeah. because I think she was seeing somebody she else. Was, yes, and the paparazzi caught him in a helicopter, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the, the helicopter crash. So that's what yeah. bothers me because I feel like he was on a, on a track of really wanting to settle down and yeah, and then this kind of it just I feel bad for the guy. It's almost like he releases this album and then right after all this stuff comes out, right? It's just like ugh. I, mean, I will say though, he and Christy Brinkley when they divorced, they divorced on great terms. I mean, they're still friends today. I mean, they're, they're, oh, good. they're good friends and I, how much I'm, I'm sure most of that was for the benefit of Alexa Ray but, right but yeah they're still they you know they, they never split there was no bitterness I mean I'm sure so there's bitterness I'm but sure there was they, bitterness, they did what but they had to do yeah they had yeah and, and they did it amicably and they you know they still talk and you know they, they still really kind of in many ways speak very highly of one another so I mean it, it was a it was a mutually you know yeah they did what uh, agreed they upon divorce, yeah. So from that list, I am going to go with Ballad of, the, of Billy the Kid. Okay. It's another one of those epic songs. Uh, it, it's completely factually incorrect. And, and Joel in, will even tell way. you, he did absolutely no research at all for the song. He just kind of made stuff up as he went along. I mean, really, really incorrect. Not like he took some liberties and it's a little bit incorrect. Like, like just Billy the Kid didn't do any of the things he talks about, didn't go any of the places he talks about, and didn't die the way that he... he uh, talks about it. and if you know anything about Billy the Kid you know it. it's it's just erroneous but it still works as a song it's really really fun in fact uh, I don't know if you're a family guy fan oh yeah, yeah. but uh, there's that episode it was Dial Meg for Murder where there's this that kind of random <laughs> there's a whole I think they almost play the entire song maybe not but it feels like it um, with uh, Peter going off and doing all sorts of western type things <laughs> yeah now you know Billy Piano Man, the problem with Piano Man is Joel hadn't really discovered his sound yet. The album meanders. I mean, it does. It, it experiments in every genre, and most of them do not work at all. I and mean, it certainly doesn't flesh out a, uh, an album that feels complete. But uh, he did. He, he experimented with the country and western. I mean, you have Travel and Prayer, of course, that opens the album, and then right. Ballad of Billy the Kid. But, you know, it, it, Ballad of Billy the Kid is a brilliant tune. It really is. And I think the fact that it is so historically inaccurate, very deliberately so, is partially what makes it so much fun. You know, and... Um, if you listen to it, like, if you try to imagine it as an instrumental, it is very classical. Oh, it like, is, Like yeah. Copeland. It's a, it's a real, like, an American oh, it an could, homage to America. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it would easily fit, you know, instrumentally, anyway, you know, with within the construct of any spaghetti western right, I mean, he, right. he succeeded you know it, it rocks it rolls it clicks it clacks along the horse hoofs no less and it features symphonic strings um and you know the the, the call and response between the bold strings and billy's piano playing it, it's really enjoyable i mean it's big it's bold it's brassy
is wheeling West Virginia Rode a boy with a six-gun in his hand And his daring life of crime Made him a legend in his time East and west of the Rio Grande Nothing is, is historically accurate. Even the geography is wrong. Um, yeah, uh, which is what I love because it says, you know, uh, he became a legend spreading east and west of the Rio Grande. The Rio Grande itself runs east-west, right, 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 <laughs> you know, but it, it's yeah, He just, never went to Nevada and Utah yeah, and all the places and he, yeah. was killed by, he was killed by Pat Garrett. He wasn't hung by a posse on a, on a boot hill that yeah. raved that bears his name and all of that stuff. And he so. yeah, was not from Wheeling, West Virginia. Or, yeah, <laughs> it's just all wrong. It's just, but it's, it's, it's a great tune and you know, it is a rollicking, when you hear it live, yeah. it is one of those songs that just, yep. it, it you know, the audience just, they're overwhelmed with energy. It's one of those songs that just brings everyone to their feet. It's and the Billy at the end is not Billy himself. It's a bartender that right. he knew as yeah. well. But. A boy from Oyster Bay, Long Island, armed with a six-pack, yeah. No, I mean, I like I like this song, though. So, yeah, no, that's, no, that's my final pick. Yep. No, we have our list. Great song. Um, let's just do, real quick, before we break, let's do our top five oh, least. Yes. We won't talk about them. We won't explain them. But we'll just, uh, we'll just throw them out there. Okay. All right. Well, well, you want you do one. I do one. We'll just go right. back and forth. Well, I'm keeping with the theme of the show, I okay. only went non singles. Right. Um, there, I did as well. There are singles I don't care for, but I went non singles. My first, hands down, worst song the man ever recorded is a minor variation, and that is on my list. Dreams. So we have a match. I mean, it is just bad. <laughs> we have a match. Okay. Mine. Now I didn't, and then no particular order okay. here. Tra- Traveling Prayer is one of mine. Really, I know that you. I, I don't, don't hate it, but I don't hate it. I mean, to me, it's it's actually kind of fun, but it's, it's yeah, but it's not the way to introduce a, yourself to the world. No, it's not. It's not a. I'm, don't, it's not representative yeah. of his work. Yeah. Well, don't don't. I don't want to be misconstrued. Here. It's not a good song. It's just a fun song. Yeah. So I, you know, I think there are worse. It is so. it, as a deep track for Billy Joel. It's fun, but it just it bothers me that. Like if I'm trying to get someone into Billy Joel, and, and they're going to put that in first, yeah, I can see people buying Piano Man for Piano Man. And, and, and it's it the first, that way? It's the first track. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It yeah. is. Okay. All right, my next one, The Mexican Connection. Okay. Street Life Serenade. Right. Both of the instrumentals are just... Dum, dum, oh. dum, 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 I mean, Root Beer Rag is That's at least... another one, like a Copeland-type song. Yeah, he was trying to... Yeah, Root Beer Rag is at least fun. Street... I mean, literally, The Mexican Connection, I listened to it a half dozen times before coming in for the, for our episode today. It is elevator music. Yeah. It really, really, it truly is. I mean, there's nothing. I really, after the third time listening to it this week, I was, I was done listening to yeah. it. I, I yeah, just, I it was painful. Uh, easy money. <laughs> it's one of my top five. Oh, Dave. Sorry, it, man. It's so much fun. <laughs> Sorry. It's there are worse songs. There are so many. All I right. didn't stick with any demos or B sides. All right, all I just right, stuck with right. album tracks. Yep, no, I get you. Well, my next one, I've already said. All you want to do is dance. And while I don't hate the song, it it, it, it ruins that what would otherwise have been a flawless, perfect album. And I'm with you. It's the weakest song, but I didn't put it in my top five. My next one, sorry, Cindy Lauper, but Code of Silence. I don't mind Code of Silence. It's not great. Four but, minutes. Uh, my next one is Cid which by the yeah, way is... Why you, yeah, what's, wrong? what's your deal with it is You know, Billy Joel considers it his worst song. Well, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem is... He, and as much as I love the Beatles, Michelle has the same problem. It's very evident he does not speak French. Okay. It is so, it's a, it is so poorly 
spoken. He wrote it because he was about to tour in France. Okay. And after he performed the song, no one, uh, just dead silence. No one applauded, nothing. Billy came off the stage and asked the, the uh, you know, the stage manager, what happened? Why didn't they like it? And the stage manager looked at him, I swear to you, this is documented, and said to him, they thought you were speaking Polish. <laughs> Okay, I mean, it's just, I hate to say that toi. It is just so I mean, bad. maybe it's nostalgia kicking in because it's Glass Houses and it was that first right. album that I really immersed myself into. Well, I'll, I'll give you Through the Long Night. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan of the, the right. ballad necessarily, but it's, you know, it's it's more than tolerable. It's it's enjoyable. I just said it was just, yeah. okay. Um, and then is it my turn? So I have one more. Oh, one in Rome. <laughs> we in have Rome. a match. All right. <laughs> Only, I, I, I actually, I, I couldn't decide, so I wrote State of Grace slash When in Rome. Yeah, yeah, they because both could have made it. Both of them, it's it's the same song. They're, it's pure filler, and it's it's just cheap. It's and B-sides of B-sides. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we all, that's funny, minor variation, though. That would probably be our number one for oh, both. It so. is just off. I mean, that is, when I say that Billy Joel should not play the electric guitar, that is the primary example. Yeah. <laughs> so... All right, well, uh, we are going to take a quick break here, and we are going to figure out a title for this mixtape, as well as a sequence for the 20 songs we have chosen. We'll do a quick uh, soundtrack question uh, back and forth, and then I have a feeling now that we've gone a little bit long again, but as expected. Uh, yeah. In fact, a lot of people who, people who may know us might be surprised that we kept this under three hours. So, <laughs> Really? You know, because yes. we could have, you know, we, we really did try to rein in and restrain ourselves. This could, I have, mean, this could have been a trilogy of we've, episodes. Just from memories alone, not to mention all the biographies we've read and, and so forth. So, yep. Okay, so we will be back right after this. And just like that, we are back. And we are going, folks, the running gag is over. We have remembered to talk about the title. <laughs> yes. And the title actually was pretty simple. It's a song that did not make our list because it was a single that hit the top 40. Yep. But it is his nickname, his trademark. Piano Man. Piano Man. Makes sense. Yep. Uh, perfect perfect title for a, you know, a mixtape of Billy Joel tunes. So that is what we are going to do this time. Uh, as for our sequencing, uh, you know, I, we know Billy Joel kind of inside and out, and still the sequencing was not an easy thing here. But it's still a good representation of oh, his career. Oh, absolutely. Well, the song choices are phenomenal. Um, I would argue you put this up against a top 20 of his singles, and this might be the better It, it probably list. would be, yeah. Um, but we, we, we feel that we... we uh, did it successfully, and here is our mixtape. Side A begins with The Stranger, followed by Summer Highland Falls, then The Ballad of Billy the Kid, followed by Prelude, Angry Young Man, into Big Man on Mulberry Street, followed by Zanzibar, then Get It Right the First Time, into Rosalinda's Eyes, that then is followed by James, and we end Side A with Goodnight Saigon. Side B begins with Sleeping with the Television On, which goes into Until the Night, followed by Scenes from an Italian Restaurant into New York State of Mind, then Baby Grand, followed by Captain Jack into Miami 2017, I've Seen the Lights Go Out on Broadway, that's the full title, that then goes into Laura, followed by Souvenir, and we end our mixtape with Where's the Orchestra. What a great list. It really is. Yeah. I'm I'm excited to actually yeah. listen to this, you know, from start to finish now. Um 
So there you have it. Our first artist spotlight, Billy Joel. And this was a long episode, so hopefully you stuck with us. Um, well, I mean, if you're a Billy Joel fan, you're not listening to this if you're not a Billy Joel that's fan. That's very true. Yes. And then we're assuming if you are, you stuck with us every yeah. second of the way. I don't see, don't see why you wouldn't. I certainly would. Um, okay, so that then takes us to our soundtrack segment. And Dave, your scenario this week, it's all over. I hate the pressure of this. All right, go ahead. <laughs> It's all over now. It's all over now. You didn't think it would end this way, but you are nearly dead. Oh, jeez. What song plays as your life flashes before your eyes? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> jeez. <laughs> morbid. A bit. What song plays while everything ends? Oh, my goodness. That's. I'm going to have to go through all my... my oh, man. Do I want something like happy and jovial? Do I want something like sentimental? Gosh, I, I don't even know where to start on that. Where my life is ending. I'm trying to think if I've told people like I want certain songs played at my funeral, which I don't remember even having said that. So let me go through my artists and think, oh man. Well, you know, the, the, the pressure is this, okay? Whatever I answer here could possibly, you know, Someone may hear this and, and at the time of my demise actually choose this song to play at my funeral. <laughs> True. So I don't want to say like Dancing Queen or something. <laughs> that would be really bad. Uh, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Beach Boys and I'm going to go with God Only Knows. Just okay. because that song is is so well, not only is just one of the most beautiful compositions ever, but it's you know, it's it, it, it's a love song. But to me, it also represents like, you know, love in a broader sense. And so it would be my way of, of just imagining all the wonderful things that happened in my life and all the special people in my life. And God only knows what I would be without them. So that's my pick. All right. This one, uh, to kind of quote uh, Big Shot, uh, you have your vintage bottle of Dom Perignon in your hand. Not a spoon up your nose. We'll leave that out. Um, what song would you want the uh, champagne to be popped to? Hmm. Uh... Well, you mentioned SpongeBob. You brought up Ripped Pants not too long ago for our Beach uh, Sand and Surf mixtape. My turn. I think if the pop of the champagne is celebratory, you know what? I'm going to play Sweet Victory by oh, David Glenn Isley. That's Isolate. a good one. Yeah. yeah, Sweet Victory. And pop the, yeah, that, I, I like that. All right, perfect. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, wow, that was those were not easy scenarios. No, they weren't. <laughs> um, okay, well, folks, if you if you think you could do better, and you think that there was a song that we should have uh, chosen, please share your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. Um, but uh, and that's true for any communication. Once again, we we really want to dialogue with uh, our listeners. So feel free to email us, message us, uh, drop us. You know. Uh, uh, a line on on any of our social media platforms. Um, please leave us reviews. Um, you know, rate us on Apple uh, Podcasts if you would be so kind. Um, but it's been another wonderful week. I I, I hope you, that you enjoyed it. Our our next uh, episode. Uh, it is uh, as we've said many times before. Dave and I are both teachers. We're educators and. You know, it is. It's time to go back to school. So that will be our theme for the next episode. It is songs about the return to school, and uh, you know, we'll we'll see what 
what each of us has to come up with. Um, again, thank you to our sponsor, Jay Callahan Painting. Um, you can find them on Facebook and please uh, you know, look them up. If you have painting needs, they serve the greater Cleveland area. And our newest sponsor is Affordable Entertainment. Now they, um, they do have a website that you can go to. They, they, uh, it's, it's a DJ service. They, they also have photo booth rentals available. But very specifically, I want to call attention to their live trivia, Affordable Entertainment Live Trivia. Every Tuesday night on Facebook, you can find this. They hold uh, a trivia game online and um, definitely uh, worth your time. Um, every week, the, the winner uh, receives a $50 uh, prize, and it's free to play. And, you know, it, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, a, a wonderful way. They, they, uh, Affordable Entertainment began this uh, right as lockdown occurred in March, and it's going strong still. So, you know, what have you got to lose? $50 prize, and, you know, people can play against each other in their own household and you don't have to play on a team if you don't want of course um, they're also looking for uh, locations to do live remotes so if you own a business uh, you know in, in the greater Cleveland area Stark County and, and the surrounding uh, area um, you know you can certainly uh, give them a ring the uh, affordable entertainment would be more than happy to come out to your uh, location and, and do a live remote of the trivia game um, so categories change every week, and, and private events are available if you want to host your own uh, trivia event. But Affordable Entertainment Live Trivia, please look them up on Facebook, and we, we are very grateful for both of our sponsors. That's it. Anything to add? I do not have anything to add. I enjoyed uh, going down memory lane a little bit and talking about the works of Billy Joel. Um, I'm sure we discussed all these songs and more 35 years ago or whatever and we probably forgot all of that so yes. <laughs> I'm sure it would have been a much longer episode had we recorded it back then um, you know, we probably yeah we would have went on all night um, so well, we, we did the best we could we tried to keep it minimal but hard to do when he's one of your favorites yep. so but uh, that takes us to the end of another week yep. hot funk cool punk even if it's old junk another mix of memories awaits next Sunday for now Press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. But we will see you on the flip side.